when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. What's good, Internet? It is Friday, February 26th, and you are listening to another special episode of Waypoint Radio. We are continuing with our penultimate episode of the Reset Roundtables. Uh, thanks again to, to everyone on the Reset crew for making this possible. These are pretty good conversations, and I'm happy to share them. First up this week, we have a conversation between Dexter, Rob Zachney, obviously our Rob Zachney, uh, and Phil Nolan, who you might remember from a past Reset Roundtable on the fighting game community. This week, their conversation is on esports. That episode is all about the sort of uh, esports bubble, the, the kind of huge optimistic eyes that went into esports and the ways in which parts of that community have, uh, or maybe not the community, but the economy around, around esports has not lived up to that hype. And then the ways that communities get left behind. You know, there's an interview with someone, uh, who is, who is deep in the Heroes of the Storm, uh, uh, community and kind of saw that community get left out, uh, high and dry by Blizzard. So conversations about that stuff. And the second half of the episode today is a conversation between Dexter, myself, and No Clips Danny O'Dwyer, where we talk about what it means to make a video game, where, uh, uh successes and failures come from. Um, that episode is also really interesting and has, and has some great folks in it, uh, conversations with people, you know, ranging from the Among Us team, uh, to, uh, some folks, uh, who worked on Hades, to Warren Spector, um, to, to some folks, uh, up at the, the, um, video game, uh, history museum, uh, in, in, God, what is it? It's the, it's the Strong Museum of Play. Uh, I remembered it. Um, who close one? Uh, and uh, and and so yeah, there's there is uh there's some good conversation there about about what it means to make a game, what what makes a, a game a success versus a failure, all the ways in which those terms and that binary don't make a lot of sense. Uh, I hope it's an enjoyable conversation. Uh, thanks for, to to Danny for for coming through, and I'll use this opportunity to say thanks to Danny also because. Uh, he let us use some no clip footage in the actual episode, which was very you know generous of him to 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 do that. So shout outs to Danny, as always. Like like having him on, love to have him on a real episode at some point. Not that this isn't a real episode, but you know what I mean. Uh, anyway, enjoy these. We'll be back next week with the final two episodes of the or the final episode of Reset Roundtable, and then we'll be back to our normal two episode a week structure. So look forward to that. All right, peace. Welcome back. So now we're gonna break it down with a roundtable. Joining me this time is Motherboard Senior Editor Rob Zachney and gaming documentarian Phil Nolan. What's up, y'all? How's it going, Dexter? Hey, how's it going? Yeah, yeah. So um, there's there's so much to cover here, but the, the first thing I want to get into is, all right, Phil. So it feels like when I hear about esports nowadays, I'm being told constantly, yo, everybody's going to be doing this. Everybody's going to be doing Everybody's going to be watching this, right? What is the actual audience? For esports, is are they going to be able to get my dad to watch this? 
I think so. I think at some point everyone's going to come around to it because like first it starts with the um, the definition of gamer, right? Like the definition of someone who plays video games has expanded significantly in the last decade, right? Like from people playing Candy Crush on their phones. Mm-hmm. In theory, those people are one or two steps away um, from taking their mobile game more seriously and maybe watching their mobile games esports if they play Clash Royale, if they play something like that. Um, I think the potential for the audience to be truly massive is there. Um, but at current time, I would say that the audience for esports is uh, very uh, Zoomer and young person heavy. Um, mm-hmm. I would, f- I feel like most millennials have a pretty solid relationship with gaming too. And that esports, uh, when they find out about it, there's like kind of this majesty to it. They're like, oh, all these games that I liked as a kid, Street Fighter, um, Starcraft, Counter-Strike, they still exist and they have arenas packed and uh, very serious teams, sponsored pro players and all that. Uh, they can correlate their experience with sports in the broader culture to that. And it's just pretty easy to, to go from there. Rob, how do you feel about that? I mean, it depends on how old your dad is. Uh, in terms of <laughs> in terms of reaching different generations of viewers, I think esports is limited in that I do not think there's a lot of converts to be won among mm. boomers or older Xers who didn't grow up with games. I do know for a fact that as you look at younger parents, you do find a lot of them share esports enthusiasm with their kids. Sometimes they come to it because their kids are into esports and you know, they got the bug too. And sometimes, uh, as Phil sort of pointed out, there are a lot of people who played these incredibly old ass games when they were in college, when they were in high school. And a lot of those games in some form are still around. And a lot of parents are tickled to find that they're being played at a high level now. Yeah, I guess so. And I mean, maybe as you were saying converts, I mean, maybe that is the wrong question to be asking. You know I mean? I think that a lot of people are still in this in this sort of mode where we feel like we need to legitimize games and we need to legitimize specifically esports. It's just, oh no, it's not just people screwing around. There's people making money and and there's people who take this very seriously. You know what I mean? And so may, maybe that is almost the wrong question to be asking is, can we get the boomers to watch? Maybe the boomers can just watch the football and the basketball. Maybe we're going to be doing our own thing in addition to the football and the basketball and the soccer and everything else. Yeah, I think... When I when I think about the potential for esports to evolve, I think historically there's been a lot of fixation on this notion that it needs to break through. It needs to get mainstream recognition. And a lot of times across media, mainstream has been recognized as boomers, as older, yeah. more established adults. And I think one of the things that's going to change the dynamic around that is simply that these generations are getting older. Uh, middle age is creeping up on millennials. And so to a degree, just oh, just father time is winning this fight for esports. <laughs> but I think esports has historically been kind of fixated on this notion that it does need mainstream legitimacy so that you could get mm. people who watch golf, people who could uh, respect what professional athletes do in the NFL would somehow give esports uh, their blessing that I think one of the dreams might be imagine Jim Nance calling esports. I personally can't imagine anything worse, but I think in esports, that was kind of a dream that in some <laughs> fashion was being chased. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is sort of a derail, but I, I'm thinking about the the arguments almost that I've seen when, hey, if there's a big match, if there's a big competition, should the announcers be wearing suits? 
are we trying to be ESPN, right? Or should we be dressing how we usually dress, right? Even just that little that little dynamic there is who who are we trying to impress? Who are we trying to be? I find really interesting. Uh, I, I wonder I wonder what your take is on that, Phil. Um, I've seen a bit of both, and I've seen it at um, places that you would think were counterintuitive. Like um, one of my first like forays into my experience with esports was playing competitive Super Smash Brothers Melee. And back in 2014, 2015, it was uh, very much on the rise. And there was just like that first trickle of esports money and interest starting to enter the game. And that was when you started seeing the shirt and tie people. Like you'd be walking around your event. that's normally, you know, there's kids in sweatpants who haven't uh, bathed in a solid 24 hours and they're playing melee exactly. intensively. And you have yeah. that. And then in contrast, you'll see one of your friends in a suit and tie on his way backstage to do commentary and that's like where the suit and tie stuck out the most to me. But then if you go to like, uh, if you watch Overwatch League or if you watch Rocket League, you might see somebody who's dressed a little more like streetwear friendly, like not um, like basic, but like just more fashionable and young. Um, I yeah. think you're seeing that a lot more at the top end of esports. And then down below, we're like trying to trying to find a not even a happy medium, just trying to figure it out, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can't think of anything more incongruous than watching somebody in a suit and tie trying to talk to me about wave dashing, but to each their own. Uh, Speaking of which, though, um, Rob, I mean, I I know this this is a specific thing within fighting game community, right? But I I see a lot of big money coming into esports, right? What would a more... and as, as I see a lot of big money coming into esports, I also see a lot of people talking about, oh, we're, we're losing something. This should be more grassroots like it used to be. What would a sustainable grassroots approach to esports even look like? So I think the short answer is nobody really knows. Or if they do know, they don't want to, they don't want to acknowledge what it looks like. I think mm. one of the things that the influx of money allows you to do is it allows you to pretend in some ways. And pretending can be really lucrative for a lot of people. If uh, the market, if there's a speculative bubble, there's a lot of extra money now floating around that can go to player salaries, that can go to coaches, that can go to team owners, go to support staff. And you can start having esports teams that look a lot like traditional sports teams in terms of support staff and money and to a degree even lifestyle. But all of that is probably being funded by speculation, not uh, fundamental business where you have mm-hmm. a profit and loss, uh, where you have a profit and loss sheet that shows money coming in and there's a way to raise revenues to sustain that. I don't think, uh, I'm hard pressed to name any esport that has answered these questions. I think sustainability right now, as we would know it, would look a lot more like what competitive gaming has traditionally been small groups of people, uh, smaller communities, slightly more raw production values. And that's fine. I think that is a great thing. And I think this is one area where the FGC has justly been reluctant to embrace the esports model because the grassroots is where the FGC lives. But a lot of other games really did embrace this more speculative, more cash rich esports model. And I think there's a lot of reluctance to imagine what life after that money drying up or uh, the speculation maybe tamping down salaries. I think Mm -hmm. there's a hesitation to look at what a sustainable reality might truly be. The last thing I would add to that is that if you look at traditional sports, 
I think a lot of us tend to think in terms of the biggest leagues around. We tend to use the NBA, the NFL as our yardstick. You turn on yeah. ESPN on a random afternoon or ESPN2, you see that there's a lot of professional sports that have communities that are no less passionate or excited to watch high-level competition as people who show up to watch the Super Bowl. In fact, really, people who show up to like a you know pool championship are probably more real fans, more legit than the people who can oh, buy yeah. tickets to the Super Bowl. But <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> like those are those are sustainable models. Those are passionate mm. communities. Those are great, healthy games. Uh, but what they are not are games that are going to fill forty thousand seat arenas and get lucrative TV deals. Yeah, yeah. I think um, every every game. And the answer will be different across every game, but uh, players and communities have to ask themselves, what do they want from their experience with this game? Like some communities, like older games like Street Fighter 2 Super Turbo or Third Strike, um, old Marvel 2 players in the FGC, I think they've seen their games go away. And they in this new era where we have Twitch and we have Maturino and Smash GG and all these democratize tools to like build a community on your own and just kind of keep it running. Um, I think that a lot of players settle on that as like, I don't want to use the word settle. That feels mean. Um, I think the players want, have different wants and needs from their community than say, you know, a 16 year old rocket player who's uh, working his way up to grandmaster and wants to break into challenger and like, you know, maybe make a name for himself, maybe make a living playing this game for a couple of years. Um, Mm -hmm it really does change from game to game. Yeah. I mean, it also occurs to me that if you're a football player, if you're an aspiring, you know, college player, if you're an aspiring uh, college player in basketball, baseball, whatever, sort of the, the, the field is set for you. If that makes sense, the, you kind of, you know, what's expected, you know, what the possibilities are, you know, what the top level is, you know, that if you are at the top level, you know about how much money you can make, you know what your options are. You don't really have a whole lot of say or really responsibility in sort of carving out the path or determining the path that Major League Baseball should go or the NBA should go or the NFL should go. Right. You're just one player. But it feels like it is kind of on players and and the athletes themselves in esports, it is on the athletes in esports themselves to decide and to try to determine, okay, which way do I want my game to go? That feels like a lot more pressure on, on the athlete themselves. But but that actually makes me wonder, I mean, how much say do the actual players, do the esports athletes have in the way that their game goes, in the way the community goes? At a at a grassroots level. Um, sometimes the players are the only people keeping the, the game afloat. I can't tell you how many mm. times I have interviewed someone who is like an established player now who might have a brand behind them now, but a few years ago their game was on the outs and their local their local tournament went away, so they started a new one. Like players mm-hmm. who really care about the game keep it alive at that level. Um, and I lost my train of thought, but that was that was half <laughs> of it. Well, I'll, I'll throw I'll throw it to you like this then that. I mean, do again, a football player, we don't necessarily expect them to determine the fate of their entire sport. Neither do we expect that of a baseball player, a football player, whatever, right? Do we, do we, I mean, how to put this? Does esports need outside people to come in 
and make it profitable and keep it on track and keep it sustainable? I would say profit profitability is another um, how profitable something is really does come down to how much the players and the community need it to be profitable. Does it just mm-hmm. need to be self-sustaining? Do the TOs need to just make a decent living and be able to throw their events the way people want them? Or is the goal expansion and growth or filling mm-hmm. uh, like a very large target, something like a, an LCS type or um, an Overwatch League type project? Like your aspirations can vary wildly. Um, and I think on a grassroots level, a lot of players are just happy to get that extra bump from a developer, maybe a bonus to the prize pool to get more players in the door. But and when you look at something like Overwatch League, you do need like a tremendous investment from multiple fronts to get it moving. And then to Rob's point earlier, the question is, where do you go from there to make it actually profitable? Rob, what do you think? Do you need outsiders in here? I think outsiders can be helpful, uh, but it depends on what their end game is. Like to a degree, esports is always going to be the future of esports is always going to be about balancing interest. This is true of any sport, and esports is is not really different on that front. But a lot of outsiders coming in to help build esports, few of them are really there to just build esports for esports' sake. Uh, although sometimes you do get that rhetoric in the esports space. When you look at things like Overwatch League, when you look at things like uh, LCS, what you see are longer term plays with an eye toward a big payday at some point, either in terms of uh, selling an asset that is now incredibly valuable or having a ground floor of a business that is going to generate massive revenue for years or decades to come. And I think that's what a lot of outsiders, when we talk about outsiders coming into esports, that is what has brought a lot of them in in the last 10 years. The question is whether or not they have the patience to see through uh, the business, whether they're going to stick out the ups and downs in games that are hot, uh, games that are a little bit less popular at the moment, and more importantly, whether they're really going to have the patience to see their business models come to fruition or experiment with business models that maybe haven't worked out but still have potential. And one of the things that makes people nervous is that one of the other things we've seen in the history of esports is that when the going gets tough, the money tends to get going. And you have scenes have to adjust to a radically different uh, quality of life practically overnight. Really? Yeah. You have any, anything come up to mind in that? So Blizzard is probably the easiest example right now because Blizzard is unusual in that they tend to announce when they are done supporting games or when they are done supporting them at a certain level. And so one of the things that esports scenes uh, around Blizzard games have already gone through is witnessing a decline in support. And it turns out that a lot of these games, both StarCraft and Heroes of the Storm are probably the easiest ones to cite right now. Both of these games had competitive scenes that were largely being subsidized by Blizzard. Blizzard was helping sustain the prize pools. Blizzard was covering a lot of the production. Blizzard was throwing a lot of the events. And it was a lot of fun, but all of that was masking a fundamental reality, which was that the competitive side of Heroes of the Storm and StarCraft II were loss leader marketing approaches. And Mm. as that began to become a sketchier business model, Blizzard began to pull support for these scenes. Heroes of the Storm 
never blew up into the uh, MOBA they wanted it to be. And so they basically said, you know, years ago that while this game is still going to be alive, while it is still going to be online and you can play it, they are not Mm -hmm. going to be investing many resources in developing it. And they sure as hell are not going to be investing in running tournaments for it. StarCraft II had a longer, slower decline, but they also just had an announcement this year that effectively Blizzard's stewardship of the esports side, that has been sunset. Uh, the, the glory days of StarCraft II tournaments, have, is ba- those days have ended. Uh, not yeah. because the game was no good, not because it wasn't fun, but just it never, it maximized its growth potential. And at that point, Blizzard is ready to wind the entire thing down. And then if you're playing that game and if you're the bet, you could be the top tier in that game and then just the rugs rip right out from under you and that's it. Yeah. And I, I think it's even a little worse than that because one of the things that scenes do to kind of mask this reality is that you have really um, top heavy prizes. And so if you win a tournament, you got a decent payday. If you got in yeah. second, if you came in second place, you got an okay payday. If you came in like eighth place or 12th place, you basically got some nice walking around money, but that's it. But think about the effort <laughs> it took you to get yeah. that eighth place, to get that twelfth, that twelfth place. Uh, this isn't the PGA we're talking about, where you can be, you know, the thirtieth best golfer in the world and be rich as hell. You know, if you are not the best at StarCraft, you are not making good money. If you're just the second best at StarCraft, you're doing okay, but you're constantly kind of looking over your shoulder. That does not sound sustainable. <laughs> no, it no, it is not. Uh, and I think that's I think that highlights one of the other things is that um, there's there's two things in my in my view. And Nate can Nate can speak to this because I think FGC is similar in this in, in this regard. There needs there need to be two things. One, there needs to be a lot of like real grassroots enthusiasm. People have to like mm-hmm. playing the game on a weekend where there's no outcome. Where I'm gonna be a pro someday. Or I'm getting ready for a tournament. People just have to like to do that on a Tuesday night or a Friday night when they want to hang out with friends and have a good time. The other yeah. thing they need to need to do in a competitive scene is they need to feel like investing their time and their energy in that competitive scene is going to bring them some kind of reward. It doesn't have to be a big financial reward, but it does have to be rewarding on some level. And once you have these really like top-heavy scenes, you start making life real miserable for people in that in that like long middle middle of the standings. Uh, to to like a social sociological point that I have heard that um, you care more about something that you sacrifice something for. I think that's really true of esports and grassroots communities. Like the more mm. you sit down, play with these players, uh, spend time attending locals, supporting your locals, um, going to majors with people, making those like real deep friendships. The more you're going to be just like built in and ingrained in these communities. And I think that is an alternative to like. Uh, esports, massive esports success on a personal level that a player can seek to attain from a community. You know, like I have heard so many people tell me that they're they've made lifelong friends from their game, and for mm. most players, that is a much more likely and much more attainable outcome than uh, hoisting a trophy in an arena, winning uh, six figures or even seven figures. Like that's something that the FGC leans on heavily. I think that. Uh, people are very welcoming. Some of the communities are very tight knit, and it's about the game first and foremost. Like the money could be cool and fun and nice, but ultimately, like we're here to play. We're here to celebrate a beautiful game that we love. Like we, everyone in that room has to feel that way. And the business stuff for the FGC mm-hmm. in particular, I think, is just like a sweetening of the deal. That's nice while it's here, 
But um, as a lot of people say, good games never die. So even if the esports money goes elsewhere, the scene will be kept alive because of the people who have sacrificed a lot for it and get what they want right. out of it. I mean, I want to I want to kind of come back to one thing because that 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 makes me go a couple different directions. But I want to come back to one thing that we were talking about a second ago. There's something I feel like we're kind of circling around here, which is that I mean, yo, there is a lot of money being poured into esports right now. There's no question about it. Is this a bubble? Um, I think the 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 short answer is yes, and the long answer is just like yes with like five or six more s's. Ultimately, like <laughs> we. We haven't seen we haven't seen the the profit that everyone's been gassing us up for, right? Like mm. it's been like a, almost a decade of this esports is this billion dollar uh, super exciting speculative business, and yeah. that rhetoric hasn't changed in five years of very rapid and aggressive esports development and speculative investment. It's been years, and we're still saying, "Oh, it's right around the corner. Next year's the year." Boom! Like to Rob's point earlier, like. We haven't seen a profitable model. We've seen exciting tournaments. We've seen historic moments on TV and on Twitch. We've seen players make their entire careers out of this and then go on to commentary. Like It's become a very real ecosystem full of work and opportunity, but under that hood, is it might just be hot air. It might like There's a lot of games that have just bet on a return in the future that hasn't... We don't see it yet, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in the esports space, there tends to be a little bit of maybe a lot of bit of defensiveness around questioning of fundamental premises of the development of the business of the industry, uh, because I think sometimes the validation that outside investment and increased production values brings becomes really psychologically important and saying that this may not be sustainable somehow comes across as a verdict on the value of the entire enterprise. But, you know, I think to Phil's point, it doesn't mean the games aren't great. It doesn't mean they're not great, authentic sports moments coming out of esports. But it does mean that the model undergirding this entire thing might not make a whole lot of sense. And mm-hmm. I think you can – I think if you say, is esports a bubble, I think I would probably say no, actually, because okay. – I think what you're talking about is a series of bubbles that like some aren't bubbles at all. There, there are some scenes I think that are perfectly healthy and operating at a reasonably sustainable um, level. But mm. then there are a lot of games that have really pursued an aggressive growth and development strategy that I'm not sure I see the outcome super clearly. And I think one of the examples of that, is a new model that's kind of taken root in esports in the last few years, uh, which is a franchise league model. And yes. this is something that League of Legends and Overwatch League both embraced. What was interesting is that League of Legends, I, I think, still has it has a huge player base. It is an enormously popular game, and they've mm-hmm. been running tournaments at a pre, in a pretty developed league for years. Even there, the economics of League of Legends remain a complete black box. We don't really know what the what the business fundamentals actually look like. There's a lot we can infer about the underlying health of League of Legends, mm-hmm. but we don't actually know. And so when you saw a lot of the teams that had made up the LCS for years sort of shown the door to make space for these outside 
uh, investor-backed organizations that were booking franchise slots and paying franchise mm-hmm. fees, you could see you could see that made some sense as a development strategy for League of Legends, even if it still seemed pretty speculative. Mm-hmm. What was really interesting about Overwatch League is Overwatch was a very young game. Uh, it hadn't really proven how long its legs were. Like in terms of competitive shooters, these are games that. Their lifetime is measured over several years, ideally, not several months. Yeah. Overwatch League was a huge hit. And from the jump, the minute they began thinking about what does competitive Overwatch look like, they never even considered a grassroots-driven model. That was never on the table. Blizzard went to a franchise model that looked a lot like a little mini NBA uh, yeah. basically from the jump. And was that a deal that made sense for anyone but Blizzard? I tend to be a little bit skeptical. Blizzard raised Mm -hmm. a lot of franchise fees from auctioning off these spots. But in terms of did it make a better esport? Did it make a better competitive game? Did it hold audience interest? I think all of that has proven a little bit dubious uh, when it comes to this value proposition. And I think that that story is common through a lot of esports. What I worry about with Overwatch League is just kind of the the risk for everyone in the esports like system that Overwatch League mm. creates. Because if this very ambitious franchise structure with a lot of outside money and very major investors um, doesn't work out, and those investors are upset and alienated, um, that is the pool of capital from which all of esports is going to draw and it will be diminished because those people will want nothing to do with esports in general if if this doesn't work out you know damn i mean yeah could could one big game messing it up could that just be the thing that has those ripple effects throughout the entirety of esports where a lot of investors just start pulling out and say you know what this is not a good move we're not putting money into this so i think if you look at the history of bubbles collapsing that is basically how it ends up happening. One mm-hmm. investment gets reevaluated and suddenly everyone holding similar investments begins looking at it and saying, wait a second, like is, is the market turning against this? I yeah. think the thing that esports has going for it is that for the scale that a lot of these outside investors operate, operate at, Esports is still a fairly small investment. When you're talking about the kind of billionaires who are behind uh, NBA and NFL franchises, uh, a lot of whom have bought stakes in LCS franchises, in Overwatch Mm -hmm. League franchises, while these are expensive investments from the standpoint of esports, they're not expensive investments from the standpoint of people who have huge capital reserves who have ownership stakes in uh, traditional sports franchises. And so I think the weird thing is, even if it's a bubble, a lot of the people who have a stake in, in the, in these bubbles don't really care if it's a good investment because it's like keeping a lottery ticket, you know, um, (laughs) magneted to your fridge. Like who cares? Jump change for them. Yeah. That is wild to think about. (laughs) Rocket league was recently picked up by Epic and it's a, it's an interesting move because Psyonix had really built something with Rocket League over multiple seasons and they have their challenger divisions and their college divisions. And they have this whole robust competitive system that Epic is just picking up almost entirely. Um, and I'm very curious to see their attitude towards that. I think they just wanted another property. They just wanted to have a bigger share of the esports market. And to Rob's point, like, I don't know how much they 
care how risky that venture is, you know? So in a, in a, in a way, at least, in a certain way of looking at it, I guess that's sort of a good thing? It means the risk isn't really risky. Like, the you know, the parents aren't home. The kids can kind of do what they want sort of situation, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, I think when we're talking about, like, what would cause bubbles to collapse – yeah. The other part of why bubbles collapse is people realize they have a dangerous amount of exposure to the risk of that investment. Right. There is not much danger in the level of exposure these investors carry. And so it's one of those things where on the books, a lot of these ownership groups could carry losses on these leagues without mm-hmm. really noticing it for years on end. And so you have the ability there to sustain a Uh, greater interest over a longer time just because you're not asking the amounts of money that uh, you know, these, these outside investors would, would really care about. So I think from that standpoint, all you need to be able to do is continue telling a story about the bright future of esports and the potential for what is coming. As long as you still have um, sort of salespeople who can spin that, spin that narrative I think you'll be able to convince a lot of the money to stay. The danger comes when people stop believing those stories, when they stop buying into that vision, because then Mm. after a certain point, it doesn't matter if you can afford to keep running the loss. You kind of just want to get out of that business uh, because it's not just the money. It's ongoing investment of resources and attention. At some point, you just want to make an exit. Uh, And so I think that is maybe the risk for esports is if you have these models start drying up or, or failing or people looking at them more mm-hmm. skeptically and you do not have the ability to continue building this narrative of esports is the next NBA, esports is the next NFL, uh, someday right. you know, you're going to have massive crowds watching kids play games. Once people stop totally buying into that vision, I mm-hmm. think esports will probably have a problem. Has so this is one I could, I mean, uh, we can start with Phil, but what what has COVID done to esports? Is this something that, that esports in general is going to be able to get through with no problem? Um, COVID is scary for everybody in a lot of ways. Um, mm. There's, you know, global economic ramifications that we haven't even seen yet because there's been a desperate attempt to keep the economy afloat and stimulated in the meantime. Um, yeah. But I would say that esports has handled COVID. They, they've had like a very legitimate opportunity with COVID. I know a lot of games viewership had gone up, especially early um, uh, mm-hmm. during times in the summer where people are normally outside doing whatever they want. Gamers included. Um, there was none of that. And instead people would turning to Twitch more and turning to streamers and turning to the yeah. esports. Um, the standard of competition for lands is usually like a couple notches higher in a given game, but like there's just been so much opportunity to run remote tournaments with games with robust servers who can handle that, um, bringing in teams to continents where they're close, like for LCS worlds, everybody still went to Asia and did their thing there. And it was pretty, the standard play wasn't really inhibited by COVID. It was just like, there wasn't an arena full of people. And while the loss of that spectacle is unfortunate, I think the success of just like keeping the sport, the esports going, uh, keeping viewership on Twitch intact has been pretty solid and you know people are buying games and making microtransactions in those games at pretty high levels through covid because it's just one of the safest things we could possibly do right now yeah 
Yeah, I mean, if, if I can jump back in, I mean, I, I remember I remember when COVID, it was clear that COVID, okay, this is actually a really big deal. And all the major traditional sports leagues, you saw everybody really kind of freaking out. What are we going to do? Do we go with the bubble model? Do we just play the damn game and then roll the dice and see what happens? I didn't see that kind of freak out really in any of the esports communities that I was paying attention to. If anything, there's been a pretty aggressive adaptation on the part of a lot of games that I've seen. Like as a Super Smash Brothers Melee player, um, we've had our online netcode that has been built by modders and by the community. Um, we've had that netcode fixed very recently, and our ability to play Super Smash Brothers Melee the way we prefer, which is like in person on a CRT analog signal, as um, as responsible as we can possibly get it, has been to a reasonable extent recreated in the computer finally like we've never really mm. had this this technology available available to us before and now that the modders have stepped up and changed the net code the game has been to some extent playable online and uh, now they're working on stronger observer clients and better broadcast tools to just keep that going for as long as covid makes us sit here and be stuck playing in our rooms you had to modify the thing yourself <laughs> so i would just throw out one thing though I think in yeah. some ways I would have expected esports to have more of a moment than it has under COVID. I think COVID has been good really? for games overall because people have a lot of time on their hands at home. And so video games are a natural way to fill that time. But I think one of the ironies of COVID is that it made in-person gatherings really hazardous. It made the logistics of planning live events uh, much more complicated and one of the funny things is that in esports for years, there has been this emphasis on the only real tournament is a LAN tournament, right? Like online tournaments tend to be looked down upon, both because they introduce elements of uh, lag and internet connection quality issues that can affect quality of play, uh, can affect players' abilities mm -hmm. to compete. And so in general, esports built up a greater stigma against running remote events, even though they have the capacity to do that kind of organically. And on top of that, you had more of an emphasis, especially with these franchise models of running live tournaments that weren't just like lands where competitors are gathering in one room to compete. They were also tournaments where you filled the rooms with fans to become the, the screaming arena uh, to, yes. to build the hype. And this was something that Overwatch League, LCS have, have aggressively pursued because they love the they love the optics of it. Uh, it is a fun fan culture. But at the same time, in some ways, esports is a space where organically people could be doing this from their home a lot more than they do. But it, as part of trying to uh, answer the to answer the demands to mimic traditional sports, mm. I think esports made life under COVID more difficult for itself than it needed to be. Um, if I can give you a counterpoint to a, yeah. a scene that kind of blew up out of nowhere, uh, when COVID hit, it was right on the eve of the motorsports season. And suddenly all motorsports dried up overnight. You couldn't, you weren't running races basically uh, through the spring. And so one of the things you saw happen was iRacing, which is just a super nerdy, intense, 
um, like peak dad energy uh, racing sim that the people <laughs> play online. Subscription only. They have rules. If you drive like a jerk in iRacing, they will throw you out of the race. They will pull this car over and, uh, you know, and send you okay. home. Like it's a very serious, uh, it's a very serious like online racer. They started running events uh, with professional uh, professional motorsports athletes uh, who occupy a lot of space in that community, who, who compete regularly in iRacing. And that was a scene that didn't have any sort of esportsification happening prior to COVID. But it really blew up in part because they had no tradition of sweating things like, how are we going to run a live event? How are we going to have a LAN? So having a reality where everyone is just remoting in and driving races together and just kind of letting it ride in terms of lag or connection quality made for some really remarkable events and created a lot of like enduring interest in that. And I think that's an interesting contrast to what happened in a lot of esports where COVID affected them almost as much as traditional sports at first. Do you think that's because a lot of esports have been kind of for better, for worse, sort of chasing the traditional sports models. Because what I'm hearing you say with, with iRacing is that they didn't have the preconceived notions, I guess, in the community that some of the other esports, you know, the, some of the other big titles had. Yeah, iRacing was never going to try to take on like Formula One or NASCAR. Like there was never any question. What are we mimicking? This, the esport itself, the game itself was trying to simulate a traditional motorsport. So there's never any question mm. of to get respect, to credibility, we have to run events that are as good as people going to a track where there's actual cars whipping past at 220 miles an hour. That was never in the cards, but that also meant they didn't have the hangups. Whereas mm. I think a lot of traditional esports definitely were trying to go for that feeling of, all right, well, we may not have a pitch, but we got a booth with five dudes in it. And across <laughs> from them is a booth of five other dudes. And then we need like thousands of fans filling the arena. And I think that made life harder than it needed to be. And iRacing was free of all that baggage and was able to just kind of rock and roll when COVID hit. Which, which makes me think there's, there's sort of a hesitance, I think, to, for, from a lot of people, which, which is to say that at the end of the day, we're talking about video games here. Is there any sort of philosophical block towards yo, we're turning something that we have fun with into a profession, into work. This is labor now. I mean, y'all are deep into this. How, how do you feel about this? I think a lot of professional esports people go through this moment like a tournament organizer will sit back after like a very intensive 18-hour-a-day, three-day work week when they put their, uh, their, their tournament weekend together. And at the end of the tournament weekend, they're like, I, haven't, I have not pressed a single button this weekend. And at first, that's really upsetting, and then it becomes normal. And I think a lot of them do kind of go through that, where they like got into this for one thing, and it ended up being another. But I mean, it's still just that love of the game. They still get to like kind of sit back and admire the spectacle and the people who do get to play it. And I think that kind of helps make it all worth it. But yeah, I think to the point to the iRacing point, sometimes you just got to do it. Sometimes I'm sure some people just get too caught up in trying to make it as legit and authentic and esports as possible when it's just like, isn't it fun that we get to do this? Like, isn't it, isn't it sick that we're all just like here and we were brought together by this game. And now a bunch of people threw a bunch of money at us to make a really good spectacle yeah. of it. Like I yeah. think 
yeah, there's a lot of sentimentality and there's a lot of um, urge to be professional about everything. But, you know, when when fate throws you a global pandemic and especially in the FGC where like in-person open bracket events are not only the norm, they're very largely preferred. Um, like you just got to figure it out on the fly. Yeah. But I think, I think Dexter, you, you have also put your hand, your, your finger on something important, which is the, the labor aspect of esports and the fact that these athletes are working a job. Um, yeah. And, I think absolutely there's been a conversation in esports about work life balance, uh, whether like the model a lot of sports adopted toward things like practice, toward things like tournament preparation, whether that was necessarily healthy. To give you an example, I come from uh, like the, the esport that caught my interest first was StarCraft. And in StarCraft, there was a lot of legend around not just Korean players, but the entire Korean model of training players. Mm -hmm. And it was a very intensive, uh, like, boot camp type experience. And you would hear about things like players would live in team houses where they practiced, uh, you know, eight, ten hours a day. People would say they would even practice more than that. They developed this kind of cult of, like, um, overwork around starcraft and so the way that you started to demonstrate that you were taking the game seriously was how much of your life were you willing to throw on the bonfire of getting better at starcraft and ultimately did that make people better some it did but some it probably also you know made them less sharp but it certainly made a lot of people love the game less Yeah. yeah and and so i think this has been a thing that's like constantly being reevaluated in esports which is what is the proper what is what is the right way to uh like care and feed an esports athlete? What is yeah. the proper way to allow these players to uh function at the highest competitive level without mm-hmm. risking their health and happiness? Because unlike football, unlike basketball, Esports does not generally have the same physical limits on it as these other sports. There's unless you're Jimmy Butler, uh, you know, you can't practice basketball 16 hours a day, but you could hypothetically try to do that in front of a computer. It's still no better an idea in front of a computer than it is to try to, like, you know, do three day practices in, in football full contact. But because it's physically possible people will do it and people will try to do it and people are doing it as we speak. There was somebody logging in our number 17 on apex on overwatch on you name it. They're in Dota. They're logging in the hours because they feel like that's the thing to do. I've heard of things like, for example, in the, uh, the top tier of call of duty play of players kind of coming to an agreement together as players to limit the amount of practice the teams will undergo so that they can actually have some sort of life. Like, Limit designating Sunday as the day that uh, no team will practice. And if a team does break (laughs) that rule, if a team does go overboard, uh, the other teams will bar them from scrimming for a time as like a way to be very, we set these rules. Very biblical. Because like, (laughs) yeah, because as long as someone wants to win more than somebody else, they're going to try and work as hard as they possibly can. Yeah. And perhaps, you know, if they're too young, they might not have a real grasp on what damage that's doing to them mentally or physically, you know? Yeah. And I mean, yo, I just look at culture wise, we definitely lionize 
the athletes in traditional sports who do that. I mean, think of any Kobe quote you've ever read. Think of any Michael Jordan quote you've ever read. You know, how many shots they took, how many time, how much time they spent on the court. But there is, as you were saying, Rob, there's a, there's a physical limit to how much time you can spend in the weight room. At a certain time, at a certain point, the bar no longer moves. At a certain point, you can no longer run laps. You have to rest. You can physically stay at your computer for a very long time. I'm sure you've all done it. I've done it. You can sit on that couch and in the, in the front of that computer and click them buttons for a long time. And for a lot of people, that feels like that's their badge of honor. That's how they show, as you were saying, that you're putting the work, that you're really dedicated to this, that you want it, that you want to win, you want to be a champion. And I think something else that is, I think there's two elements of esports that I think make this issue extra complicated. One is that baked into a lot of these games are competitive matchmaking uh, ladders where you can see how many people are really incredibly good at a game. And this may not be something that the very best players particularly sweat because top athletes in any field are just categorically better than even, you know, the 1% of players in a sport. They don't have to sweat about like, am I going to get replaced at, you know, a minute's notice? But there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people in esports who might be near that boundary line or might think they're near that boundary line where, you know, they are a few bad games. They are a few bad tournaments away from being cut from a team and sliding yeah. back down into, uh, you know, basically high-end competitive matchmaking, but you're you're playing for yourself at home. You're no longer going to tournaments. You're no longer part, part of the team. And that is a scary thing. And I think this is a reality of a – this is not unique to, to esports. I think this is a fact of life across a lot of fields right now. There sure. is a keen awareness of how many people will be happy to do your job and how many people are ready and willing to take it from you at a moment's notice. But I think in esports, that is certainly sharpened uh, when it when it comes to you can open up the game you play, and right there you can see the people lined up like who are competing for a spot in in the sport. The other element I would cite as a complicating factor is there is like. Esports fans talk a lot of shit on Twitter and in social spaces. Mm. And so if you have a bad game, uh, I think you hear about it much more personally and much more immediately in esports than pro athletes necessarily do. That is that is incredibly true. Uh, and more so, it's or, uh, furthermore, it's the way you play the game, the way you choose to play the game, the style in which you play the game might make you the target of like a lot of pressure and harassment online mm. first and then if events ever come back could happen there too like there's there's a lot of really weird attitudes about the way people play and how they get treated as a result across many games so i'll throw this uh i'll, I'll throw this to you phil first then so let's say there's a budding esports athlete right name the game whatever game right who's thinking they want to give this a shot what kind of advice do you give to somebody who's thinking about getting into esports for real? Thinking about taking it seriously? Uh, more and more younger players are learning how to learn right, right? Like it's not enough to just sit there and grind the game, although that certainly helps. I think mm-hmm. more and more I would tell people to find their community, find uh, other good players who will take them under their wing because those people do exist and they're usually really comfortable bringing somebody in and showing them what they know and kind of steering them in the right directions because like uh, you can learn a lot more efficiently. You can practice a lot more efficiently um, 
like maybe 18 hours a day isn't the right way to practice if, you know, 10 of those hours, your brain is so fried from what you're doing that you're not playing consciously, you're autopiloting, you're not changing the game at all. You're just kind of going through the motions. Like Mm -hmm. I would learn to learn for lack of a better term, like reach out to people, see what they know and just find an efficient way to grow as a player. Because that's, I think that's really what sets a lot of better players on the come up apart is that they've, they, their, their practice is structured, their attitude is structured, their mentality is structured. Everything Mm -hmm. is deliberate and conscious. And I think that's really important. And it can be tough when you're first jumping into video games to grasp because it's just fun and exciting that you're good at first, you know? Mm-hmm. What's your take, Rob? Yeah, I mean, if it comes to out of breaking esports as, as a, a professional esports player, I don't think there's a lot I could tell people who are, who have the skill who are aspiring to get into mm-hmm. it uh, in terms of developing their game, having a great career. Uh, but I think the thing I that occurs to me when I look at look at all these spaces. The advice I would probably give is if something does not feel right, trust that instinct and mm-hmm. hit pause on the conversation and go consult with other people. Because esports is a space that's not as bad as it was, but esports is a space where people will be handed a lot of bum contracts at the last minute and pressured to sign stuff that they had no business signing. There is a there are a lot of esports organizations uh, in the past that have overworked their teams not necessarily even out of like malicious intent but you know there's a lot of organizations that totally bought into that like cult of hustle uh that cult of overwork and i think it takes a lot of strength of character to know what is right for you as a person and for you as a competitor and i think one of the things that is dangerous in esports to people who are trying to make a go of it as a career is that it can there can be a lot of pressure to conform to whatever is happening around you and in general i think when you hear horror stories about stuff that's happened in esports it has been because players didn't feel they could say no or players didn't feel they could say hang on let me think about that and get back to you after i've talked to my people yeah i mean a lot a lot of the shady stuff that you see happening in esports um it's the industry is so young, you know what I mean? I mean are, are there bum contracts in sports? Yes. Are there bum contracts in the music industry? Absolutely. But if you're a young gunner who thinks you're good, there's people who have come years before you who you could ask, right? There, there's somebody in, in the recording industry where, you know, they went through this 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever, and they can guide you. It feels like in esports, it's so young that, so, you know, you're looking to somebody two years who did something two years ago, right? And and what kind of advice can they really give you? Because they haven't been through the whole cycle yet. And just it, it seems like the the blueprints, not even the blueprints, but the people you can look up to, it's it's a much smaller field of of lessons that, that you could you could learn from them. So you're really just kind of making it up as you go along. Not making it up as you go along, but it's it's almost like you're, as you said, you kind of have to go off of your feeling in your gut. Does it feel right? Because you may not get that that guidance from somebody who came before you. Yeah, and I think a lot of I mean, an unfortunate side effect of esports having grown and changed so rapidly 
is that a lot of people who are still in the space have moved on into more business development roles. They are now people who are also trying to pump up that like that speculative investment. They're trying to build a bigger brand, build a better yeah. organization. So there's a lot of like ex players who, you know, have great reputations and such, but nevertheless, you can't approach a lot of the people who remain prominent in these spaces just as mentors because it's like your mentors are also a little bit th- – might be thinking about being the CEO or they might be thinking about being your boss or they might be yeah. thinking about like trying to sell the entire thing to an interested investor. And so I think that – I think you have sort of hit upon something there, which is that the game has changed so much and you have so much talent get cycled through that it can be tricky to figure out like – who are people you can actually trust to look out for your interests mm-hmm. and who are people you have to watch out for uh, who are maybe maybe going to put their interests and, and what they want to do in the space ahead of what's good for you? Um, so, I mean, as you were saying, the for a lot of these big money people, right, investing in esports is basically a rounding error. If they lose money, they lose money, whatever. No big thing. What happens to the athletes? What happens to the people who are actually the labor? What happens to them if things go bad? I would say, um, I mean, it's not a fantastic plan B, but I know a lot of players will kind of go to Twitch whenever things go awry. Like they'll kind of mm. try and like get their streaming career off the ground, try and uh, pivot to some kind of influencer-like presence in the meantime while they try and find the next thing. Um, depending on what game you're playing, a player might simply shift games like uh, to the points about Apex Legends and games like that. Um, a new FPS hits the market that has a very large footprint immediately, almost every every like three months, six months, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you can pretty quickly shift. And for example, we saw a lot of that with Valorant when it dropped. We saw Overwatch players, Apex players, CSGO players come out of the woodwork and make a run at Valorant. And then uh, whoever it didn't work out for in Valorant, because I'm sure there'll be a lot of orgs who step up to acquire teams. And then that investment whether it was well-meaning or not might not work out those players might go back to an earlier game might move to PUBG, might move to something else um there's a lot of ways to ride the wave and Mm -hmm. i think um your average e-athlete's career length even in the most optimal circumstance isn't more than a few years maybe a decade tops so a lot of these players have a a very short-term approach to the game at the start if at all Mm -hmm. And while they do really need to maximize their potential in that tiny window, um, there are there's more than one way to do that if they're willing to pivot or uh, develop their skill set as a streamer or something like that. So I remember uh, years ago I was at a tournament um, IPL five. This was IPL five. This was IGN Pro League five, which were mm-hmm. tournaments. You want to talk about bubbles? Uh, IPLs were these ridiculously lavish. Uh, beautifully produced and completely unsustainable, like boondoggle projects. Um, they were awesome, by the way, to attend. Uh, <laughs> but I was at IPL5, and I remember the main event was StarCraft at this tournament. I think there was a League of Legends exhibition tournament. Um, and what, what year was this? But, uh, gosh, this was... I This was 2012, I think, 2013. Okay. Something like that. Um, but the thing that really that I really remember was there was this game called Shoot Mania at that tournament. And Shoot Mania was uh, this, this shooter 
from this, I think, French development studio that had made a game called Trackmania. And the idea was they made kind of build-your-own-fun games. And so Trackmania, you would build a race course, and then you would race a car around it. Uh, like it was not a serious racing game, but it was kind mm-hmm. of fun in the way Excite Bike was fun on the NES yeah. uh, years and years ago. Shoot Mania was their approach to doing that for shooters, and what they were trying to—they built their entire game around basically two weapons from Quake Three: uh, the railgun, which was a one-shot kill, like instant uh, speed of light uh, hit detection weapon. And then the rocket, uh, which was a slow-firing uh, projectile weapon. Yeah, the details aren't that important, but the thing is, this game was ugly as hell, and you could take one look at it, and you knew this wasn't going anywhere. Nevertheless, um, this tournament was stacked with a lot of X, uh, like X Quake Three pros, basically, like people who are at the top of their of their shooter scenes, who were basically showing up at the start of the shoot mania scene just to notch a quick win, bag the prize money that they could get while it was there, and then try to move on to the next thing and figure out where shooters were were headed long-term. And I think to a degree, that is the model for a lot of esports athletes, but I think it's easier in the shooter uh, space because there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of new games that you can maybe move on to. I think it's trickier if you're looking at things like MOBAs. Um, League of Legends is the only League of Legends. Its competition is gone. You can't. It's not like you're going to move on from that and go back to Heroes of New Earth. That scene is that scene is is dried up. That ship is completely sailed. Yeah. Um, you can't move over to Dota because they're totally different games. And so I think yes. players like that are kind of naturally in a slightly more exposed position uh, in mm-hmm. terms of risk. But I think the other thing that you have to watch out for when these scenes sort of collapse. Um, and I think this is one, this is a good thing that the, that the franchise model has brought in. They have tended the, the addition of franchises and treating these things a little bit more like traditional sports has generally been accompanied by at least some effort at making sure the people who own teams, the te- the people managing players are doing those jobs responsibly. Because mm-hmm. I think 10 years ago in esports, eight years ago in esports, there were a lot of people who were just kind of along for the ride and trying to grab with both hands and become like, you know, an esports tycoon on the back of players who were naive, uh, mm-hmm. who didn't have a lot of opportunities. And when these scenes would dry up or when these teams would fall apart, you would have players completely hung out to dry, wondering what happened to my last three months' pay. Uh, what do you mean that the team house is shutting down? I got to find a new place to live. Yeah. Um, what do you mean that I've now got visa problems for staying in the U S uh, that, that I didn't have. And so that has become less of a worry, but I think it is mm-hmm. still a concern. We talk about like when scenes suddenly collapse, people build a whole lot on this foundation of esports, and players bear the most risk and can often be the hardest hit. Uh, just on a personal level when things like shut down really quickly. I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking that for example, every now and again, I have somebody read some paper I wrote, right? Every now and again, I have somebody come up and ask me about grad school. Cause I went to grad school and they'll ask me, Hey, I'm Dexter. I'm thinking about going to grad school. What advice do you have for me? My number one advice is don't, don't go. It's a bad scene. It's a bad industry. There's a lot of problems with it. Uh, there's some things that are better than they used to be. Some things are worse than they used to be. My honest advice to you, 
is don't. Because I, I can't in good conscience recommend that somebody go through some of the stuff that I've seen. I came out fine. Some of the stuff I've seen from other people, the horror stories, just it's not worth it, right? Is there is there a situation in which either of you would say, you know what? Some young person trying to get into esports, you know what? Maybe the best advice is maybe don't do it. Oh, I think a lot of kids might have trouble understanding or equating the amount of work that would come into being a professional video game player, right? Like, mm. obviously, from the, from the outside looking in, they're playing video games and they're winning and everybody loves them and that's exciting. Uh, they get money like, and it's glamorous, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But on the other end of that, a kid coming into that doesn't really have a concrete expectation for what their adult life is going to be like in the first place. Like maybe they don't have like an experience having to like work their way up the ladder in a business or have to work really rough hours at a retail position or something like that. And Mm -hmm. like, I think uh, one of the things that makes kids able to do this is how much more malleable they are than older people, right? Like they're coming in, they're playing this game routinely from a very early age to some extent uh, they might be more adaptive to that. Of course, there are very clear limits to that, and there's a lot of room for them to be taken advantage of and for them to not pay attention to their own needs. But I think mm. I think that's one of the things that helps kids as they come up in these ecosystems is that they're just they're kind of just ready for whatever. They don't right, really know what to expect, and they they might be able to handle it. Right. I, I think for me, the the thing I would say is hang on to the intrinsic motivation as long as possible. I think mm-hmm. this is this is not just an esports issue. I think this is afflicting uh, young athletes basically across every sport where you see more and more of these semi-professional pipelines reaching earlier and earlier into uh, players' development, right? So mm-hmm. it's not long. You, don't have, you do not have very long playing Little League before you are sorted into a travel team to see whether you got the stuff to maybe be a college player and then yeah. maybe be a pro player. Uh, you know, hockey is a similar situation. A lot of times these things are also about enriching coaches, et cetera. Um, but when I think about esports, I think setting out to be an esports pro is probably a bad goal because mm-hmm. the odds are so stacked against you and the amount of work it takes, even if you get there, uh, is so monumental that it's just it's not a great dream to chase unless you like a game so much and you realize like holy hell I'm close enough to being good enough to do this as a pro like on mm-hmm. a like I can see there on the standings I can see in terms of the people I'm competing with I could actually do this and I think that's where you make the call but I mm-hmm. do not think you sit down as a you know 12 year old and you say, I want to get in esports. Let me find a game. You got to find the game first. You got to find the love for that game first. Mm. And then when you are close enough to like see that dream come into view, then you got a decision to make about whether you chase it. But yeah. I don't think it's something you can just up and chase. This, I'll, I'll throw, I want to throw one last thing because I know we're, we're running out of time. Um, I'm wondering about how do you feel about the college model? Because I'm thinking about there are definitely athletes out there in traditional sports, right, who do not think they're going to the league. Right. They're not going to be the next LeBron. They know that, but they know that they could get money to go to college. Right. And I'm thinking about when I went to Harrisburg. Right. This is a college that they don't have a football team. They don't have a basketball team, no baseball team. Their varsity program is esports. And they gave 16 kids full rides. 
And I think some of those kids really thought, yeah, you know what, I'm going to be pro. But I think there were probably a few in there who were thinking, you know what, I'm pretty good and they're going to pay for my education. And so let's just work it like that. Do you think that's a safe model? I think it's a safer model than, you know, just trying to grind it out, go pro and bet it all on being one of a very tiny pool of players who are able to make a living playing this game. Like mm-hmm. if you can get an education as you move into the, you know, the other two thirds of your life uh, yeah. with like some kind of college <laughs> education outside of esports, I think that's a tremendous advantage. That's really great. And any kid who gets that chance, that's that's pretty cool. Like um, much like professional sports, I would hope they would also just get paid, especially if the universities are making some kind of money off that deal. But yeah, um, well, that's another conversation entirely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like it's making a catching a decent deal in a pretty rough system economically, you know? Yeah. I mean, if somebody's going to give you college tuition to play esports, then you take that money and you play you play esports for for that college. <laughs> but in terms of whether that's a model that's going to work out long term, uh, I don't think so. I think there's mm-hmm. first of all, I think there's already kind of a um, disappointing history of college esports programs finding quality of competition, building meaningful culture or rivalries. Some of the organizations that are built up around. Um, college esports like TESPA uh, basically got bought out and co-opted by Blizzard straight out of the gate, and you never did have a real uh, college league ever form. And so I think when you look at college esports, I think, yeah, your best outcome is that somehow the NCAA gets involved and athletic directors start caring about esports and start offering full rides. But then that all presupposes... If colleges are doing that, that that presumably means esports is breaking through. It's becoming a sustainable model, and there is a reason to get uh, involved in this. If that is all true, is the NCAA and Division One athletic directors are those the people we want commanding the college pipeline of esports pros? Right now, it sounds like a good deal, but that's because it's all speculative. If this thing ever happens where it's real and there's a real financial stake for colleges to get involved in the, involved in this, um, maybe it's a good a good deal for players right now. But I think in that alternate universe, I think you probably want a different power structure, a different uh, model of organizing competition than the NCAA. So on that note, uh, we're gonna have to wrap it up, fellas. Uh, Phil, Rob, thanks so much for hanging out with me. Thanks, Dexter. Thank you. Whole lot to think about in here. Hopefully we can do this again soon. And for you, definitely come back next time. There is a lot more to get into right here on Reset, the unauthorized guide to video games. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
We're back, and it's time to break it down with the Reset Roundtable. Joining me this time are the host of Waypoint Radio, Austin Walker, and the games journalist behind No Clip, Danny O'Dwyer. What's up, y'all? Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. So, Danny, your films for No Clip give this really interesting and in-depth, really behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to develop a game. So you've looked at so many games at this point. What is it that makes a good game? Have you noticed anything in the process? It can come from so many different places, right? You can have a, a small team that's pretty inexperienced, but they come up with an idea that just really works, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they're good enough to carry that idea over the line. Um, you can have a, a really large team, which may seem unwieldy and almost too big, and take on something uh, fairly normal, like a sports game, for instance, but they just really nail it. Like They, they do a great job. All the pieces click into, 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 into place. Um, and then... I, but I think if there was sort of one thing that uh, pushes a game from good into great, uh, from my experience talking to studios, it's it's institutional knowledge. It's those people who have been there, mm. who have really honed their craft, and who are able to maybe even lead the people around them in their department into making something from you know fashionable and working into something that's yeah. like truly exceptional. And you don't often get to see that from playing the game you need to sort of go into a studio and actually talk to those people and oftentimes those people as well are usually the folks who don't really want to talk about their praises so they sort of fade into the background (laughs) but that's often uh, a big part of it you you've made so many of these documentaries has there ever been a point where you're talking to a developer whether it's for a project that you're working on or not where you're just thinking based on what i've seen i don't know if it's going to work out so well man yeah, like I think it happened a lot more when I worked on the press side at GameSpot because you had access to more games. Like at NoClip, we're sort of already filtering the stories we think might be interested, mm-hmm. uh, interesting rather. Um, but you know, when I hosted the E3 stage for GameSpot, for instance, you had a lot of people who were coming up with their games, which might have been pretty early in production as well. And even they're not sure, you know, and you can kind of sense that energy or, you know, this game is being made because of a a licensing deal that the parent company has. So, you know, oh, I guess we're making this game now. And uh, it it can happen. Um, And it's tough because, like, games take a long time to make, right? It's not like, Mm -hmm. you know, making a YouTube video or you know, maybe writing a song or, you know, working on a piece of art. Games take years. So when you're like tethered to a game that's not really working, it almost has like a sort of an inverse quality reaction where people sort of on the team get more stressed about it and more worried. And the game sometimes ends up maybe worse than it, than it would have been as a result. It's, it's tough. Making games is hard. The other thing also happens, you know, on the press side, you'll go play a game at an event at E3 or something and you'll yeah. be like, wow, that was really good. And then the game releases, and you're like, oh, that section of the game was really good. <laughs> and, and that's because the way that you know, uh, those E3 demos, for instance, get built is kind of specially made for those events, for that press. Uh, you know, everything is like as, as tight as can be, ideally. Um, and sometimes you can't bring that, that level of polish to something that's a much larger, more unwieldy game. Um, or the opposite happens. There have been plenty of games that I've gone to play, and I've been like, ooh, this thing is like falling apart at the hinges. Like this thing isn't going to make it across the finish line. And then it, it gets there. And I think that that speaks to something that you hear again and again when you talk to game developers, which is no one really knows if the game is going to work until that final like 10% uh, of the development process. Because so many, especially with large games, they're made in bubbles in ways where 
Department A is working on, you know, the systems for the stealth, you know, the, the sneaking around. And then Department right. B is working on environmental design. And, and Department C is working on music and sound effects or something. And then they all come together and put it together. And it's just, wait, wait, this works. Oh, my God. Whoa, this actually, we built something really cool here. And those success stories are, are, are great to hear. But it does seem like a lot of stress to sometimes not know what type of project you're about to ship until you're about to ship it. In y'all's experience... For when a game comes out and a game just objectively isn't so hot, it's not a great game. Do the developers know? Always, almost always. I guess every once in a while, you you know, you have someone who's kind of iconoclastic and is out there and is like, "No, people don't understand my game." Blah 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 blah. But most of the time, and Danny, you can you can back me up on this. If you talk to a developer off the record, especially, what you hear is like, yeah, we knew that level seven was trash and that everything after that was going to fall apart. We didn't have time to fix it. Our budget was short. It was a mistake we made a year and a half ago and we, when we didn't realize it was a mistake. No one knows these games as well as the developers themselves. And I, I think in my experience, if you write well thought out, considered criticism, they tend to want to hear it and think about it because it's sort of like a PhD, you know, uh, a student giving their dissertation. Right. They've thought about this thing nonstop for years. They care about it deeply and want feedback. They want to know what works and what doesn't work so they can continue doing a good job in the future. You just had to get personal, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> had to get personal, 100%, yes. Yeah, to speak to that, I mean, I, I totally agree. Uh, most studios, when they put out a game that's not particularly good, they kind of know there might be a bit of like sort of cautious optimism maybe <laughs> like just hopefully this will find a, an audience um but oftentimes people who put out games that are really good feel the exact same way like they don't even know if the game resonates with people right because they're on the opposite end of the experience curve for this they've played it to death they can't even see it anymore it's it's right here in front of them um and they they have no perspective on it and they don't know what it's like for somebody coming in for the first time playing their game um and yeah it's like it's like austin said all of these disparate parts come together and it's it's like a soup. It's like they've collected all of these ingredients, but when you combine them, you don't know if it's going to work. If mm-hmm. it's, you know, if this part is too strong or this part's too weak or whether or not they'll fuse together. And by the time you sort of put it together and you've only got weeks left, by that stage, you're just throwing salt and pepper on it. Trying to make sure it's like, you know, somewhat palatable. Right. And, and to, to even complicate that further and going back to your question of like, what makes a good game? One of those ingredients is what other games came out this year? What have people been playing? What sort of taste do they want? Have they been eating chicken soup all week? Because if so, if you're going to feed them chicken soup, then maybe they're not going to want chicken soup. Or the opposite, which is if no one's ever fed them chicken soup before, they're going to be like, oh, what is this? The ground hasn't been set yet. The place hasn't been set yet for something that would otherwise seem delicious to be well-received. I think the games that are not just considered good but great often are the ones that come out just at the right time where the audience has this taste. They don't quite know what it is. I think about a game like um, Lord of the Rings, Middle-Earth Shadow of Mordor, Mm. which had this really unique system where all the bad guys, like the the kind of most important bad guys, were all made by the computer, procedurally generated, where you would have these orcs that had unique names and voices and characteristics, and your game was different from my game, and we'd get rivalries with these characters. And that scratched an itch that people didn't even know they had, and it was so innovative and new. That second game came out and like expanded on that a little bit. They did a little bit more stuff, but it didn't really land because the basics of what uh, that game was doing had kind of been done to death by that time, even though it still had that one really unique system on top. 
Yeah, I mean, and it can be kind of superficial as well. Actually, like look at a game like Hades that came out. Yes. Right? It's like, oh, why didn't anyone make a game about Greek mythology before? And then within a month, um, I forget the the eventual title. Immortals, but it was called Gods and Immortals Phoenix Rising. Bad name. It's not a strong. Yeah, not a strong name. That game comes out, and of course, it's getting compared to Hades in its story because it's it's using the the, the same reference material. But but there hadn't been a game about Greek mythos for uh, you know. Uh, a decade since like god of war three or something right yeah so it's 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 so hard right you're taking your shot but you've no idea who else is taking the same shot at the same time and i'm i'm even thinking of you talk about timing animal crossing sure i mean nobody was ever going to say that animal crossing was a terrible game for what it does it absolutely clears checks all the boxes you want it to check but would it would would it have hit as hard if it would have dropped in 2019 Instead of right about when everybody was going into quarantine, absolutely not. Right, it's just you know magnitude, order of magnitude different in the in the term of the reception of people who weren't even super hardcore gamers. That's a great example too, because what separates what people think of as like a good Animal Crossing from a great Animal Crossing game has to do with a bunch of little things around how much am I allowed to do in a given day, and how much, how long does it take me to be able to build the sort of house I want to build, and all these little things that happened to click into place around quarantine when people had maybe a little more time in front of the TV than they normally did because they don't have a commute or something like that. And that's like a really tough balancing act on the design side, and it happened to work out. But maybe through no fault of their own, if that game had come out two months prior, the experience, like, it's hard to, to really underscore this, the experience would be different for the people playing the game. It's not just when you sit down to play a game, you're not in a vacuum. You're not like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm objective and I'm playing the game and this is good and this is bad. Right. This is spicy and this is cool. It's, it's this, this experience that exists between you and the game kind of put together. And people don't even really know what's going on in their own heads with why they like something sometimes. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking even going back to the feature on the DS where you could make friends with somebody who passed by. Yes. Right? If Straight you pass. live in a sub... Yeah, right? If you live in a suburb... It's completely irrelevant. But if you live in the country where this was developed in Japan and you ride the train every day, it's amazing because the odds that you're going to get matched with some 13-year-old schoolgirl and some 65-year-old salaryman who is sitting across from you is pretty high. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. You know what totally, I mean? Totally. And so you could think, oh, this is silly. Why would I ever want this? And just the your own environment determines whether something is good or not. And that can change like we've seen in a matter of weeks. And we understand that already with like music. We know that musics, you know, exist in a certain place and time that they reflect neighborhoods, they reflect different scenes, different different demographic groups, all that other stuff. So it's I think it's a good thing that we're realizing that might be true also for games. Right. So I want to I want to flip this and talk about failure. Right. Because I think we talk often about, oh, these are the greatest games of all time, these are some of the best games that ever came out. And I we, I think we do talk about games failing, perhaps more than we ever have in the past, but it feels like something is missing when we do that, in the way that we talk about games failing now. I think that's fair, and I think that, I, I think probably Danny can speak better to this than me, but in the same way that we were just saying there's all these external things that help contribute to success, that's also true for failure. I, I, I think so anyway. Danny, right. does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, failure, just right off the top, you know, broadly speaking about failure, um, a lot of it has to do with expectation and also how we talk about games within sort of culture, right? Because oftentimes there are games that were 
failures commercially, but we think of them as successes. You know, think about games like uh, Okami or um, uh, Psychonauts, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, games that are sort of revered, but actually, you know, didn't work. And in the case of you know uh, Okami, led to the closure of a studio. Right. Um, so it's 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 different these days because I think perhaps the way we talk about failure is that games did not meet expectation mm-hmm. and. Oftentimes, that's because of bigger games setting really, really high expectation. Games like, you know, obviously Cyberpunk is, is a recent example. Um, Fallout 76 being another one where expectation was kind of off based on the marketing, perhaps. Uh, and then No Man's Sky as well. Right. You know, a game yeah. that on the face of it, that's a game made by a very, very small team that was doing a lot. If it didn't have that big, you know, weight of expectation, would we have considered it a failure when it came out? If it came out with, you know, an early access asterisk attached to it, would we have considered it a failure? Um, I'm not so sure. Well, and it, I think that gets to what do we mean when we say failure, right? Um, is it a failure to simply not live up to certain expectations? Are we talking about financial failure? You know, you look at a game like No Man's Sky, which a lot of people ranked really, really low when it came out because it didn't live up to this dream version of what it was in their minds, that game still sold gangbusters. <laughs> and yeah, totally. and to, to the degree that that studio was able to support it for the last four years plus now uh, with free updates over and over again. Right. A game like Cyberpunk gets raked along, you know, gets raked across the coals because of some of its like transphobic content, because of the way in which it just like looks like trash on last gen consoles, because of its bugginess, all that yeah. stuff. It's still been in the top sellers on Steam and GOG, obviously, for the last two months now, right? Right. It's still selling really well. And so there's different degrees of what we mean or different styles of what we might mean by failure. Um, And that that can be kind of hard to unpack. And and sometimes it means the lesson that you hope is learned maybe isn't necessarily learned. Um, Yeah, I mean, Danny, you spent some time with the CD Projekt team. What do you make of what happened with Cyberpunk? I mean, I'd love to get the opportunity to get some of those folks in front of a camera and and, and chew it out. Um, obviously, we've covered a bunch of their stuff in the past, um, and it's it's always hard sitting on this side to to sort of read the tea leaves, right, and trying to sort of reverse engineer what went wrong. Um, I think if I was to take a uh, you know take a swing at it, it looks like the game didn't have enough runway. That seems fairly obvious that they just released too early, even with all of the um, you know. Uh, uh, delays that the game went through over mm-hmm. the past couple of years. Um, so that seemed like probably the most critical problem was that they had some sort of issue which which kept requiring more time. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps that had something to do with how big the studio has gotten post-Witcher 3. Um, it's often different. Dif- it, it's often more difficult to fix ideation problems or you know find the fun in a game when you have that many people, right? It's why... Ubisoft games are often, uh, you know, considered quite cookie cutter. Um, the reason, perhaps, for that is because, uh, you know, they don't spend a lot of time in ideation because they have these massive thousand people teams working on these games, and you kind of can't, right? If you're trying to hit a deadline of, you know, three or four years down the road, you need to run a really tight ship. So perhaps that's the case. Um, often, uh, I, I think about the early days of CD Projekt, right? They're a fairly scrappy. Uh, crew mm-hmm. in, a, in a country that doesn't have that much of a history of games development. They were sort of leading the charge on that. And if you think about Witcher 1, I mean, Witcher 1 is one of the buggiest games you'll ever play, right? Mm-hmm. Witcher 2 was maybe more buggy. I think more people <laughs> played it, so it has the like, you know, people think of it as even more buggy. It wasn't until they put out the console version of that that it, it actually came together, ironically. Um, 
The Witcher 3 was the third time they made a Witcher game. And even that one came out kind of buggy, but it was such a polished gameplay experience. And they basically fixed the sort of last, you know, uh, technical stuff they needed to fix with patches post-launch. Mm-hmm. And it's now one of the greatest, you know, role-playing games of all time. And, you know, Cyberpunk was the first time they made a Cyberpunk game. It was the first time they made a first-person game. It was the first time they made a game at that scale. So right. in many ways, I'm not surprised that it didn't reach the sort of expectations of quality and perhaps innovation as well that Witcher 3 did. Um, quite how I think the console versions came out in that state, that reads to me like, you know, optimization comes last when you're making those types of games. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, those games are really rough around the edges right up on tie until you're, you're kind of content locked. And then at that stage, you sort of smooth the edges, make sure everything's running correctly and put it out. And it just seems like maybe they didn't have enough time to make that the case, or maybe it was too late to, to make them optimized for those older mm-hmm. consoles once they've packed everything in. Um, it's always hard to tell reading it from this side. Um, hopefully, we'll get the opportunity to talk to them at some stage. It's funny, you know, I think thinking about just the, the studios we just talked about, uh, CD Projekt Red, Ubisoft, um, we were talking about if a game was a success or a failure based on, like, does it live up to expectations? Does it move the right number of units? What do the critics think about it? What do the fans think about it? But there is another way to, to judge these games as successes or failures. You can have a game that releases to rave reviews, sells millions and millions of copies, yeah. and then did so, it turns out, on the back of exploited workers who have been working Ooh. in what we call crunch okay. for a long time. Yeah. Look at a game like Red Dead Redemption 2, super well-received by both fans and, and critics, mm-hmm. sold really well. Red Dead Online is going extremely well. Yeah. But you look at the history of labor reporting that you know interview people at... Uh, rock star, especially folks who were not doing kind of the prestige roles, not the executives, but the people doing QA, the people uh, who are expected to stay up late and and do, uh, you know, not just game testing, but make, make new assets overnight uh, to, to, you know, make sure that you impress the person who's an executive. You, know, you had people who were coming in on the weekends to sit at their desks and find work to do, because if you didn't do that, you were targeted by one of the executives uh, and called out for not doing enough hard work. And you're like, you're, I've already been here five days a week, 10, 12 hours a day. You yeah. need me to be here on Saturday too? And it's interesting that that stuff in, in the kind of discourse does not get lumped in with, was this a good game or a bad game? It turns out that the way we talk about labor problems in this industry, or with Ubisoft, for instance, sexual uh, misconduct allegations, uh, you know, uh, hostile workplaces for marginalized people in general across race, sex, and, and sexuality... Um, uh, that stuff gets, we kind of bracket, bracket it off. We kind of say, oh, that is, the process is bad, but the game is good. <laughs> um, and, right. and I think that that conversation is changing a little bit when you look at something like the way cyberpunk was received, or there's some resistance among certain communities even around looking at big Ubisoft games this year after the string of allegations that came out of that company in 2020 and going like, okay, pump the brakes. I might still play it. I might still buy it. Yeah. But I'm not going to use my Twitter to like amp it up and hype it up a little bit. And that's an interesting place that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's interesting, I think, to compare that to other parts of culture, right? Because if you're if you're really into food, right, right, and, and you really know food, then and you go somewhere and you there's some meat that is unethically sourced, right? Then was that a good meal? Right. Maybe maybe it tasted good. But if you're somebody who's a professional or you're somebody who takes food very seriously, that's going to knock your, your rating down a few pegs, right? If you're somebody who's really into fashion, you know what I mean? You're, if you found out that 
the that such and such company stole designs right. from an independent creator and they're just making cheap knockoffs one and, and the material is a little shoddy and everything else is, <laughs> is, is is that a good shirt is that a good dress is that a good suit no it's not mm-hmm. right it's a copy of somebody else's thing and so these are things that i think in other areas of culture we take very seriously but this isn't necessarily something that i see in the discourse online with video games right it's yo does it work is it fun Cool. Because the other part of that is, and I think this isn't just within games, within, within tech, is that crunch is kind of this badge of honor. It's just, yo, I was doing 80, 100 hours a week. <laughs> I was sleeping under the desk. And, and we actually, we've grown up reading the stories about what it took to make this game, what it took to make that game. And when we find out, man, they were just brutalizing the workers there, man, everybody was just killing themselves making this damn game. In some cases, literally. You know totally, I mean? totally. And it's, it's often the case that, you know, uh, there, there's no unions for the most part. In, in North American game development, there, is not, there are not many unions. There are not many co-ops. There are like one or two in all of North America. Right. Um, worldwide, things are slowly changing. Um, but there is not like a place for, if you are a QA tester, the person who plays games to identify bugs, send them back up to the programmers and say, yo, on this level, if I switch to this weapon and then this weapon, the game crashes. And you have to be there until midnight you know, to try to catch as many of those as you can because right. we're shipping the game. If, things, if you feel like you're not being paid what you deserve or you, you feel like you're being mistreated, you know, harassed poorly, you know, uh, not, not taken care of right, there isn't really much you can do. You can go to HR, you can go to your boss's boss maybe, but like, that's, you know what the problems are with that. And until that changes, I think, in this industry, that part of this question is going to be very difficult to solve right. because it has to come from the bottom up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you also get um, a lot of uh, interesting insight into this, uh, or at least I have, when I went to different countries and, and different studios in different parts of the world because the sort of um, <laughs> the cultural norms that come from that, or even perhaps in the case of a lot of European studios, the sort of legal back, um, the legal... Um, I guess, and a safety nest that exists there for some studios when it comes to workers' rights. It, it, it's so different. Like you, we went to, you know, Gorilla, for instance, in, in Amsterdam. Everyone seems, you know, it's a fantastically egalitarian <laughs> culture, uh, you know, outside of games, but they, they all seem to like turn up in the morning and then and go, you know, home afterwards. Um, uh, the one that stood out to me was IO Interactive in Copenhagen, where people were swanning in, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning after dropping their kids off and then leaving early so they could pick their kids up from school. Um, and yeah. then, you know, you compare that with a lot of North American studios where, you know, a lot of these European st- studios might be the only game gig or the big game gig in that country. So people are kind of like, they're there to make a life for themselves and they want it to be sustainable. Whereas in North America, people are generally more transient when it comes to this type of work. So they'll, you know, they'll take a little bit of rough work if they get a good game on their resume, you know. Um, And then compare that with Japan, for instance, where, you know, we did documentaries in studios in Japan where the studio floor was full when we turned up in the morning pretty early and it was still full when we left. And that's just, that's the culture, right? Are they... How do you unpack that? You know, it's it's that type of there. There's there's varying levels of what crunch is. There are terrible managers that keep people there. Mm-hmm. There is a sort of a uh, competitive culture, maybe that has people trying to you know stand, make sure that they're standing above other folks on the, on the pit. Mm-hmm. There can be you know sort of an insipid need that if anyone if someone goes home, then they're not a team player. That yep. can be a big yeah. part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, 
or it can be something broadly cultural, like in Japan, where it's just a, a culture of really giving your all and, and your work being, you know, a, a really important part of your identity and, and uh, an important thing to do. So it's, it's very interesting to go different places and see how that sort of manifests in the type of games people, uh, these studios make too. Yeah, I think, I mean, and of course there's exceptions. I, I didn't tell you this, but uh, a funny thing actually about the Supergiant interview that we did was I actually hit them up in between that, you know, in between Christmas and the holidays, we were trying to get everything set up and it was just, no, we don't, we don't do that. If you want to deal with us, you need yeah. to wait till after the new year until, until the Monday, right? Not even on the weekends. We, we don't really do email on the weekends. If you want to talk to us, we'll do our best. Let's talk after the new year. And it was just, what other game studio can you think where they don't have somebody just all the time, 24 seven on press, on staff, on email, ready to answer your questions to every whim, but they, they really did put boundaries up and which I think is, is amazing. It's admirable and it's great for the people who work there. The flip side of that, however, is when something goes wrong in a game, you definitely do see people getting on the discord, getting on the Twitter saying, Hey, why didn't you work on this harder? Don't you know how to program games? Get better at your job. Spend, why didn't you spend enough time on this? Right? That's, that's a weird thing because the, I think the interesting thing about playing games in 2021 recently is that everybody's a critic and i mean that in a, in a really great wonderful way right because if you wanted to really think deeply and think hard about games back in the super nintendo era right 64 era i mean what are you going to do you it's that's left it's to the done. people that's the left to the people it's done and that's left to the people mm -hmm. who have a journalism job writing in a magazine right it's game pro is doing that for you you can't it's not this we don't have an area we did not have an area where you know, you can put out your own thoughts about it. Maybe you print up a zine. What are you going to do? Now, people have a YouTube channel. People have whatever it is. And, and there are so many more voices about that we can talk about. Hey, this is, what, this is where this game succeeded. Right. This is where this game failed. Hey, everybody loved, everybody hated this game. I'm going to tell you why it's actually one of the greatest games of all time. <laughs> I will ride in the army for Shenmue until I die. <laughs> Right, <laughs> you can say whatever you want about Shenmue. Failure. Yeah, exactly. Shenmue, it's Shenmue. Bomb. Shenmue did not do what we're supposed to do. I don't yet care. It pushed the medium forward. It pushed the medium forward. It is one of easy top ten for me. The other thing that's different now is, and this speaks to what you're saying, is like you have your SNES game. You play it. You're like, oh, this is it's real buggy. Like too bad. That's it. It's the game. Now I think about something like Danny. You did that great uh, no clip documentary on Final Fantasy XIV, a game that launches is a failure in in many respects, and now years later has become one of the most popular MMOs ever made. Yeah, I mean, and I think that goes to a, a part of this that we're talking about with the Hades stuff as well, where sometimes these games actually do need some of that feedback to become the game that they, the best version of themselves, you know? Um, Final Fantasy XIV uh, version 1.0 was technically as well buggy in lots of ways that were just ridiculous. I remember there was one story about there being a, a they forgot to like down res the the barrels in the game so if ever you entered a room that had a barrel it was like a trillion polygons and it just like <laughs> crashed servers just like there was objective ways in which that game was broken um but in terms of its gameplay experience uh all that feedback that they got from their players uh led to a realm reborn and the other reason you know we talked to the folks at supergiant about why they went out into early access and yeah, you know, a big sort of 
you know, uh, question mark at the top was like, oh, it's a really clever way of like having multiple launch dates, right? Which can be a very uh, good financial uh, strategy to have your super fans come in at one stage and then, you know, to have your sort of big 1.0 launch as they did in 2020. Um, but one of the things they kept telling us about was the whole idea that we actually need the feedback. We've never made a roguelike. We've never made this type of game that's going to be re- replayed over and over. We've made these very, um, you know, beautifully crafted you know, our sort of idea for what this experience should be to had a very straight beginning and an end. Um, and that's not what Hades is. And when over the two years that we covered the game and, you know, I was playing dev builds that whole time, capturing footage, you could see it. You could see the ways in which that game in, in large ways and in very minute but important ways really? was getting influenced by all those people. Yeah, it was incredible. The Discord was full of feedback. Every time you looked on the, their, um, uh, their updates, every patch that they, they did or any of the large updates, they'd have a little icon for the bits of feedback that came from the community. And it was like the majority of them. <laughs> so it's an interesting part of the, the discourse. You know, games like No Man's Sky, for instance, again, listened to the community, applied um, those fixes and made the game better. And... Again, it's it's two things. It's on a technical side, it's making that game better and, and that gameplay experience that people want. And it's also that expectation. If you're if if you're asking people what they want and you're able to do it for them, then you're meeting them, you know, all the time. You're meeting them halfway or you're you're meeting their expectation. Right. And then that's what happens when Hades hits 1.0 is that it's not only a game that they made, because the version they put out in early access was like super fun. Um, but it's it's the best version of that because of that sort of feedback cycle. Um, that they had with uh, a, a, with a good community, not just one that was like throwing you know <laughs> any sort of feedback at them. It was already sort of like a curated community of people who really cared. I really hope over a long period of time that also just helps to change the relationship between players and games because having early access as a thing, which which if you don't know what we mean when we say early access, that's kind of a, a, a catch all term that we use for games that are released in kind of an, an alpha or beta state of an unreleased, you know, an unfinished version right. of the game. Uh, more than a demo, probably, but less than the full product. Right? Kind of play at your own risk for super fans. Exactly. If you love our stuff, you get to play it. You might get to give us some feedback, but totally. if something breaks, this is why. The, right, exactly. Yeah. And, and I hope that over a long period of time, you get enough players who've played something in early access, they find some game that they like that's changed over time, that they start to understand a little bit more about what goes into game development. Because frankly, I think a lot of the reason why you don't often see a lot of solidarity with game workers who are upset about work conditions is because the public doesn't know what those work conditions are. You know, we have a pretty decent idea of what it means to make a movie. We know what a director is. We know what a, what a, you know, a camera operator is. We understand that there's an editor um, we understand what, uh, what, a, what a band or a rapper does inside the studio. We know there's a producer. We know that there are mixers, right? We understand that there's someone there who is, who is performing inside of a booth. We get all that stuff. But if you ask the, a random person who picked up and played The Witcher 3, all right, how many people made this? What did they do? What yeah. was their jobs? They were like a programmer, okay, like artists, obviously. Maybe musicians. Maybe musicians, That's yeah, it. totally. Yeah. But like, or, or did they buy that music? Who knows, right? Like there is not a lot of clarity as to what goes into the process of game development in a mass audience way. And I think the more transparency, whether that's through documentaries like the ones Dexter and, and Danny, you y'all make, or through playing games in early access, seeing that process, getting updates from knowing that there's a developer who has a name 
who is like, yeah, I saw that update or I saw that, that feedback and we incorporated it. Hopefully that starts to help change a little bit of what the attitudes are towards game developers long term. Yeah, yeah totally. I think a, a big element of that is uh, that people had no idea. They had no sort of um, insight into how these games were made. So they just sort of assume, you know, like the less you know about something, the more you kind of assume about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the more that people are exposed to that, uh, and I think early access is a big uh, part of this in the way that modding was back in yes. sort of the, the 90s and early aughts where yeah. we had that sort of back and forth and people could see the dials getting turned. Um, you know, there was a weird phase there in the in this sort of like maybe 15 years ago where we had these sort of cult of personality game developers, you yes. know, that were sort of the, 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 the figureheads for their games. And it gave this very inaccurate view of games development of, as sort of... This, this band leader that has like a bunch of peons behind them yeah. uh, trying to make their idea of what the game is. And generally yeah. it was just a byproduct of kind of like the media where you needed a spokesperson, right? And then some of those spokespeople became these, uh, these, these, these folks that we associated with those games. Um, I think we're shedding that as you know, more and more of this work is getting done. Um, and also I just think people are, are more interested in it. I think you know, people are playing games one game longer and they're getting more interested in the nuts and bolts of those games in a way in which 10 years ago we were kind of, I don't know, playing games more like having meals or watching a movie, just being like, oh, that was a good one, on to the next one. Uh -huh. That's kind of changed. People are more in, sort of invested in one right. game and, and how it works and how it plays. Do, do you think we'll get to the point then where for a game to be considered a, a success, right, both by a reviewer, say, who does this professionally as a games journalist and by you just average just fan of games, that it's got to have all the boxes checked, right, which is to say graphics got to be good. Gameplay's got to be tight. Story's got to make sense. And the people who made it had to have been treated well. Because that, that last one, I feel like, doesn't get, it doesn't get mentioned much. I don't know that we'll, that. it's hard to know if we'll get there without much larger scale changes to, like, mass ideology. <laughs> because we don't think of that that often, uh, you know, a foodie might think about that when they sit down to a meal at a restaurant. Um, a, you know, someone who's deep into fashion might think, that, think about that when they're looking at a runway or whatever. But like if a lot of people are just going to buy the thing that they feel they need to get through the week, whether that thing is going to get some groceries without checking where those groceries were sourced right. or be like, I just need to play a game tonight to like yeah. take the edge off my week of work. And most of them are not like going to websites and being like, were these workers exploited? I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the serious, the people who say I'm a gamer. Capital G I, yeah, gamer. but I think even those people who call themselves capital G gamers are not the people who are out there looking at what were the conditions of the labor production here. Because I think, frankly, on the media side of it, though we, we often run reports when we can, one, it's very hard to do that sort of reporting. The were people treated well here reporting. Is afraid to talk? Uh, and, and because it is, it is hard to get that sort of access to begin with. Um, uh, to start. Um, and because a lot of people inside of the industry don't think there's a problem, despite living through the problem in some cases. Um, uh, but, then, but then also, I, I think that there's, there would need to be a larger scale like shift in the way people think about things generally for that to become the thing. I think you see it inside of games criticism. You see what certain people inside of the industry who are, who are rallying and trying to have their audiences at least be a little more conscious. Um, but in terms of just like the person who goes on Steam to buy a game, even an indie game, even someone who is really, you know, locked in in that way, uh, it's hard to know if we'll get there with them anytime soon. That doesn't mean we shouldn't keep working towards it, to be clear, but I don't know.
maybe that's maybe that's pessimistic of me, Danny. Maybe you have a different <laughs> relationship with gamers these days, but. Yeah, it's, no, it's funny. I think, uh, you know, sort of broadly speaking, all of those elements you talked about, right, graphics and, and story and gameplay and all that sort of stuff, I think there's no denying that the, the general quality bar ha- is constantly being raised. Yeah. If you look at indie games especially, like what was required of an indie game to be a smash, you know, a breakthrough hit 15 years ago was very different to what it is now. You need to be, you know, you need to be crafting something really exceptional. Um, and with small teams, you know, that can be, pretty tricky these days there's just so much knowledge yeah. and so much talent out there. And, and you gotta so get that's lucky the to some degree right we talked totally, about yeah. uh, uh, among us right is a game that launched was a failure yeah. in terms of commercial success and then again like animal crossing this year the conditions of the world being what they were and then and then some support from some big streamers combined really opened that game up gave them a, a great deal of success that they would have never predicted after their original launch. Yeah, it, no, it really was a perfect example. As you saw earlier in the episode, I mean, if you would have asked, is Among Us a success or a failure? If you would have asked that exactly a year ago, you'd have said, oh, no, it flopped. Yep. It's terrible. Nobody played it. What now, game? I don't know. What, among what? Among who? who? Among who? You, mean, you mean Last of Us? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You had no idea what we're talking about. But yes. then just a few months after that, it's just, oh, no, one of the biggest games out right now. Everybody's playing this game. Totally. I, I, got, I got people texting me that, I think the last game they played was Cafe, like Farmville. Right. And they're just, yo, that, yo, you want to play some Among Us? No, what? <laughs> you play games? Right, since when? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, sure. But when did you pick up a controller? Right. It's amazing. Right. Totally, totally. Yeah. Um, so I, w- I wanted to th- throw this to both of y'all, which is that, as you were saying, the bar has been raising a lot, right, quality-wise. So I think the, the bar for quality has been just going up higher and higher production values, right? But also so budgets have been getting bigger in games. Uh, teams have been getting bigger, right? The amount of people making these games. Back in the day, it used to be, really was very common for 12, 13 people to make a, what then was considered the equivalent of a AAA game. With the budgets and staff sizes and all of this ballooning, do you think we've lost anything in that process? I think it it depends sort of um I think results vary depending mm-hmm. on the type of game that's getting made. Um there's a sort of there's one s- sort of uh truth that we can't escape and that is that making games that run in, you know, 60 frames plus at 4K is just really expensive. Um if it's any sort of like, you know, world 3D world where you're walking around in, um there's no denying the fact that, you know, drawing a chair in a LucasArts <laughs> game, you know, back in the 90s was a lot easier than, you know, rendering a, a realistic looking chair in a modern game. Um, so for that, you're just seeing a lot of uh, extra hands being required on projects, be it for art, be it for animation, um, a lot of things like that. Um, so that that's one element of it. Another element is that games are getting played longer, right? So instead of requiring a game that somebody might complete after 10 hours, you know, let's say Half-Life 1, like 15 hours, done and dusted, great, all-time classic, great job, everyone. (laughs) Nowadays, you want, you know, people to keep playing your games. If it's a game as a service game, you want people to to keep playing games forever, right? So the um, gameplay requirements and sort of uh, the, the intelligence behind those systems and then also 
to have a team be able to run past launch continuing, that's also requiring a lot more uh, hands on deck as well. It is still possible for small teams to make games. You know, Hades is a good example. Supergiants, no more than 20 people. Right. Um, but we're definitely gone past the point of, you know, Skyrim. We did a documentary on Bethesda Game Studios in Maryland. Skyrim was made by about 50 people, right? And they're like, how is that possible? Wow. You know, that was really people 50 complain people. That, you know, yeah, it's I don't insane. Think I knew yeah, that. it's uh, damn. It's it's the and I you know that's a team that often gets called out for all its buggy games, but it's also a team that treats its uh, employees incredibly well. They they have the the longest tenure of any studio I've ever been at. I think the average tenure it was in our documentary it was something ridiculous, like seventeen years. Wow, like, people Ooh. stick around, right? Yeah, you know. So yeah, Fallout seventy six was buggy, but you know people went to home. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I think I think the biggest outlier with this sort of stuff is games like the Ubisoft games, which I think have been, you know, some of them are are have really good setups, right? Like uh, Watch Dogs Two is a particular uh, favorite of mine over the past couple of years. They've done. I know a lot of the more um, recent Assassin's Creeds as well have definitely found an audience. Um, but those games tends to have a sort of a uh, feel to them, right? And a large yeah. part of that is likely to do with the fact that if you're going to shepherd hundreds and thousands of people, perhaps, through a development process, you need to have a fairly strict plan. You need to stick to it. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's often the case. I think there's not as much innovation in sports games as we'd probably like because of that sort of requirement of them being annual and them being too big to fail. Right. Um, yeah, although you can argue so. that that's never stopped Madden being the way it is. <laughs> Those yeah. games are often not particularly well-loved uh, in terms of how they end up, but, you know, I buy it every year. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, sport, sports games are a unique thing, too, because, you know, for the last, I guess, since what, 2K7 or 2K5 uh, was the last time there was a competing NFL game outside right. of Madden, which was which was when uh, the, the 2K series, which people know from their basketball games, were at the time still able to make football games but then but then EA locked up the NFL license in a certain way to to ensure that they could just pump out Madden every year with you know maybe this year there's the truck stick and next year there is some different you know way of throwing the ball but it's marginal I don't want to say improvements but differences like a slightly different focus this year or whatever and that doesn't help things either in a situation like that yeah i mean what one of the things that, that hit me with just there i I, I hesitate to say that something has been lost because game studios are bigger. I mean, obviously, we've gained something. Some of these massive games just are absolutely impossible if you're doing it with 12 people with 20 people, right? Supergiant couldn't make some of these massive games that we love. It just, it's, it's not feasible, right? I, I think there certainly is something to be said for the small, though. You know, if, if we're to take a film example, right? There's a big difference between a Marvel film and an independent film where... An independent film, somebody can make a decision. It's a creative decision. You actually really get to feel the creative vision of one person. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, to go back to Hades, uh, talk to Greg, you wouldn't know necessarily that Hades, for him, is an immigrant story. Born in Moscow, moved to the U.S., had very high-achieving parents, and who obviously wanted the best for him. He probably clashed with them a little bit. And you see that in the game, in the story. Now, would I know that off bat? Absolutely not. It's also not my experience. But for somebody who does have that experience and plays that game, that's amazing for them. And if this decision and this storyline had to go through a huge committee, would it have happened like that? Almost certainly not. But he was able to say, look, it's 19 other people here. I'm handling the story. 
we're going to do it like this. And as long as everybody trusts them, they're good. And you really get to see that singular artistic vision, which I think is amazing. I think the movie comparison is really interesting um, because it is clear that we have the kind of two, um, let's say, ends of the spectrum in terms of indie art house, big summer blockbuster. Right. We have the Marvel movies of games. That's most blockbuster games. Yes. That's pretty much everything that comes out from you know, September 15th through December 15th. Those are the big, you know, big tent, this is what you're there for uh, releases. Though also some of those do come out throughout the year now in a way they didn't used to. Um, uh, and then we have the super indie alt, alt projects, the like, the super artsy stuff that you only find on, on their, the game creator's personal website. You download an EXE file, you're a little nervous to hit play on it, but then you do, and you have this deep emotional experience. That, like, Partially totally... because you think your computer's about to get a virus. Exactly. I'm like, I don't know where this came from, but all right, let's go. Fuck me up, fam. Um, and so you do that one, and, and you're like, okay, cool. But there is this other mode in film that is just like drama films, right? Um, that is just, you know... Sometimes it's like the Oscar bait category, but there's lots of films that are fall in that other category of of someone who's trying to make a statement film or just a quiet movie about a relationship. Or and there's a big audience for those movies. Maybe not as big as the next Avengers movie, certainly, right? Uh, but bigger than the small art house cinema experimental film, right? And that space is still very new inside of games. And it's, it's the ways at which both the far, like, the far art spectrum side and the big budget side are coming towards it are unique and not always productive. Like, I think that from the big budget side, you end up with games like Last of Us that are supposed to be these big, meaning, meaningful, mournful, big picture idea things. But basically, you're still just killing people for 30 hours. That's still fundamentally what the game is. And then from the indie space, you're getting games that, that tell really interesting stories about characters, but they're hamstrung by the fact that they don't ever get the budgets that those big budget games get. You're not going to get 50 people working on a game that is explicitly about immigration that does not fall back into being an arcadey hack and slash game or something like that right now in the market anyway. I think that's changing a little bit. You can look at something like the Life is Strange games, kind of fill in that space a little bit. Um, I think obviously games like Gone Home and Tacoma from Fulbright have started to open that door or uh, 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 Firewatch also kind of plays in that space. But those are small teams and they certainly don't have big AAA budgets. And I would love to see smaller creators who are currently in that zine space get up to the sort of mid-tier budget that you would see in film to do, like what is the Sundance or, or the Cannes Film Festival of, of games? And right now that doesn't really... Exist. And that, that's sort of, I think, the, the risky thing, though, is because trying something like that could well land one in that category yes. of success, which is that it didn't sell anything. <laughs> but five years later, people point to that and say, man, remember that game? That changed everything. It sold 100 units. Yes, 100%. You know what I mean? You, you, you're, the pixies of the, exactly. you know what I mean? It, you risk being, played it, made a game. You risk but, being the Velvet Underground. Yes, 100%. You risk being the Velvet Underground of video games, which is amazing for the stories that people will tell. But bad for the bank account. Bad for the bank account. Everybody right. who's in the band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, and, the, and that's and that's become you know as as development teams have gotten bigger and also development uh, time in often has has gotten longer as well for a lot of these games. And mm-hmm. um, that's where you start to see uh, fewer of the sort of riskier games from big studios specifically, and a lot of them are playing in the games as a service space. Yes, and that is you know abjectly conflicting with that type of idea. Right mm-hmm. at that stage. You're really not trying to test the market or or, or, or expand <laughs> on the audience's desires. You're you're trying to meet them right there in the middle. So um, I think that's where you're seeing a lot of you know criticisms of you know studios like EA and Activision perhaps for for being a little bit safe. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's just part of trying to make that type of uh, product, I guess. That that is that is one thing that I have to say. As much as I love you know load and reload and shooting people in the face in a video game, love it as much as anybody else does. One thing that has definitely started to bother me, which just within the last few years, I think, has really started to kind of great for me, is that a lot of big budget games are, okay, so the guy with the gun, what's his motivation for shooting everybody, right? It's, that, that's the starting and point. And it starts there. And it starts outwards. there. It's yeah, just, yeah, okay, totally. so you know the guy with the gun, right? Okay, so <laughs> why is he shooting people? Uh, it's not, yeah. it's not, is it a guy, is it a guy? It's not that, is, do they have a gun? It's yeah. where, are they? it's just, it's, okay, the guy with the gun, he has Why, to do is he Why is he shooting? Yeah. So, yeah. What, what kind of past does he Who have dies? that makes him right. shoot yeah, exactly. people? Yes. And it feels like we're at that stage still. And it's incredibly frustrating because I would love to play a few games like that. I don't want to play 20. Totally. I don't want to play totally. 50. I'd like to play a few games like that. I'd love them to be great because those are fun. But then I would like to play some other games. And that I feel like is in that space where, you know, the indie titles are, where they are taking them risks. And pushing things risky. forward. But it's risky. It's super risky. I mean, like this is the thing that we haven't said here. We talked about one way in which uh, games have changed over the, the last decade in terms of like the positives. Like, oh, wow, we get more games in that space. But we also just get more games, period. There was yeah. a time when something like Steam, which is the biggest PC game retailer, um, uh, put out maybe a game a day, maybe two. Today, if you went on Steam right now and looked at how many games came out in the time we had this conversation, you would be surprised. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and and any, any, any game, but especially independent games, have to come out in that space and compete with them it, with everything else that came out every week. And that's really hard to do, even if you do have something that is technically superb, where the team was treated well, where there's new original ideas, where things kind of have a cool look. Maybe they don't look like a huge AAA game, but they still have some sort of like really sharp style. My backlog is huge. I buy so many games every year that I put like five minutes into it. I go, damn, that's good. I got to come back to this one day. But there's so much else to play that, that I don't do it. And that's me. This is my job. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think for a lot of people, and I've heard this from a few people, Greg at Supergiant was saying this, I think it possibly is the best time to be a fan of games right now. It's probably the best time in the history of gaming to be a fan of games. Because there's so much out there. And it's got to be really interesting to be a game developer because it's so much easier to make a game. The flip side of that is it's so much easier to make a game. Yes. Everybody's making games. And I imagine it's so hard to not get just lost in the current of the flood that is is Steam. I mean, you, you talk to indie games developers all the time. How are people feeling right now about launching games in 2021? Yeah, it's hard. It's, um, you know, we had that sort of inflection point a couple of years ago where some of those really good indie games came out and really sort of, uh, once digital distribution became more standardized, that's yeah. when the floodgates opened on that, right? Because suddenly they didn't require a large publisher to get them printed and put in your local GameStop, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
once they could do that somewhat directly or through Steam or, or you know another marketplace, um, it really uh, opened the floodgates. And then you had a bunch of really good games come out of that. A lot of people, like for instance, Supergiant, were folks who left uh, an established studio. A lot of them worked at EA, working on Command and Conquer games, uh, and decided to make their own little indie game. And that was Bastion. And Bastion was a novel game that had a really interesting, you know, story. And they had it had voiceover that interacted with you and fantastic performance mm-hmm. by Logan Cunningham. Gorgeous art by Gen Z and really cool music by Darren Corb. And it, it found an audience, right? But also it wasn't competing with a billion other games. Right. Um, you can't make Bastion today and it'd be that type of success, right? People would say, oh, it's Roche or I've played a game like this before. Um, so... I think it's incredibly difficult these days just because getting any sort of mind share with the audience is very tricky. Um, And we've seen it with a game like Among Us, where you make a game that is ostensibly a good game. People like playing it, but you need some sort of magic wand in the public to be waved. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, you, know, you can spend a lot of marketing and that helps. It certainly helps games like, you know, Cyberpunk, for instance, had a huge marketing push and that probably contributed a lot to the amount of units it sold in its first couple of weeks. Um, but without that, you're sort of, uh, I don't know, you're, you're, you're throwing your lot in the air and seeing where the wind takes <laughs> it. And it's very, very tricky these days. Do, do you think Supergiant could have had the success if they started this year? rather than years ago as an indie studio? So there's a thing about that studio in that they have a lot of institutional knowledge. Mm. It's a small team, but it's the type of studio you walk into and you're like, oh, I'm the dumbest person in this room. (laughs) (laughs) Very smart, capable people, you know, emotionally intelligent as well as proficient in their craft. Mm. So, you know, were they that 10 years ago, those same people? Um, Perhaps not to the level they are now, I imagine. Um, but I don't know. I think what I th- the reason I think Supergiant games sort of tend to stick out is that they are aggressively making games that they want to make. You know, they're making games that are within their ability scope. You know, ba- Transistor is very much a reaction to Bastion. And Pyre is very much a reaction to Transistor. And Hades is the same, right? They're all built on each other's sort of, um, you know... The, the types of games they wanted to make and then coming off that album. You know, that's why Pyre yeah. is the difficult third album. It's the weirdest one. It's, it's so that's good, what they though. To make. Deeply underrated. So totally. If you were to ask like Supergiant fans, Pyre fans are the most fervent of them all, right? Pyre's a really good Okami or Shenmue totally. reference, right? Yes. <laughs> it didn't sell, but people love it to bits, the ones who played it. Hmm. So uh, I don't know. I think, I think it would be more difficult for them to you know, stick their heads uh, ab- above the rest of the crowd in 2021 than it was for them you know, a decade ago. Got you. I mean, it was you. You mentioned Among Us a second ago. It was it was cool talking to Marcus at Inusloth about Among Us. Is is that is the success of Among Us changed the way you look at things at all in games now? I feel like it more confirmed biases in some mm. ways. How where so? well, in the sense of, of kind of what we've, we've spoken about a little bit before, that success doesn't just come from the game itself is good. It comes from right place, right time. It comes from partnerships. I think about a game that is similar in ways you might not think from a few years ago is Rocket League, a game that blew up Mm -hmm. on PSN because it was part of a thing called PlayStation Plus uh, for the PS4 that that if you were a subscriber, you just got that game as part of your your weekly or your monthly subscription. And so suddenly there's this influx of people who all played it uh, and played it together and and loved it because like the basic concept just felt so good or the controls felt so good to just drive that car around. I guess for people who don't know, Rocket League is like soccer, but with cars. 
Uh, and they had tried that game years before with another different game and not found success. But this time, right place, right time, right platform, good, good partnership, suddenly people are willing to pick it up and play it for free. In quarantine, uh, I believe it was Among Us free, or it still is free, right? I think you've got to pay for it on Switch. Maybe that's what it is, yeah, but otherwise it's free. That's the right place, right time for a game like Among Us to find an audience. Um, And so for me, that sort of confirmed that bias. Though I guess, you know, it's, it's, in some ways what it does is it's a reminder that your first blush encounter with a game might not be seeing it in in the right place or right time. Maybe there's another condition or another context in which it would really hit with you, uh, whereas here it didn't, you know? I mean, the other half of that stuff with with the the Inner Sloth team, the Among Us team, is it was cool to see a team come out of the history that they did. You know, Supergiant comes out of places like EA, or Greg Kasavin has a history even before EA being in the game's press. The people who made Among Us were on sites like Newgrounds.com making Flash games and yeah. animations. And you could feel it. You could feel it. It, in that feel, game. it, it feels, feels it's like a the, Flash the game. The Newgrounds vibes are heavy. 100%, which yeah. is good. I'm glad <laughs> yeah. to see that that history, that lineage represented in one of the biggest games of 2020. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I, and to flip it a little bit, to, to go back to failure conversation, um, so the World Video Game Hall of Fame has this pretty interesting approach to successful games, games that made history, right? What if we were to flip that? What if we were to say the Hall of Fame of failures? <laughs> if, you, if you were to nominate something for the Hall of Fame of video game failures, what would go in there? What, what's top of mind for you? The Sega Dreamcast. My favorite oh. console of all time. Woo! Right? So, okay. like, my favorite console of all time. Yeah. Barely made it a year. Yeah. Beautiful um, console, though. Beautiful console, incredible games, yeah. all the things we keep saying. Games that push the, the medium forward. Shenmue, Fantasy Star Jet Online, Set Radio. Jet Set Radio. Mm-hmm. Style, you know, su- style and substance yes. in so many games on that platform. Uh, understood that, that uh, internet connectivity was the next step. Um, had cool little uh, uh, VMUs. The, the memory cards had yeah, a screen on them. You yeah. play a game on them, you take them with you. Like mm-hmm. that's before the iPhone. You know, <laughs> I mean, you could yeah. give it so much credit for so many cool things that it did. But a combination of when it came out, what the strategy was, what the bank was because of the failure of the Sega Saturn before right. that, um, uh, all of that stuff contributed to one of the biggest failure stories in games history, in gaming history. It, ki- it killed Sega out of the platform market. Sega used to make video game consoles. Yeah. Now they make video games. That's a different scale. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So that is that is an interesting, and I think uh, it's the sort of failure that is close to my heart because I was rooting for you. I was rooting for you, Dreamcast. <laughs> I, was all, I had the jersey, like, let's go. And oh, no, man. unfortunately, it didn't make it. Wow. I know that's kind of bigger because I should have just said Shenmue or Sea. No, or no, that's okay. That's games, okay. No, Dream, Dreamcast is a very that that would be that would be in it. That makes sense. How about you? What's what's your nomination for the video game Hall of Failure fame? <laughs> oh man, you, you can't divorce it from expectation, right? Because that's yes. that's what truly makes the fall from grace even higher. So I don't know. When I go back into the sort of the history of games, you know, one that stands out for sure. Uh, is Daikatana. Um, just because there was so much expectation for that. It was coming out of Ion Storm. It had John Romero's name t- uh, attached to it. Um, and then it came out and was just this like sort of... It, it, it was weird in all the ways that worked for a game like Quake that did not work for a game like Daikatana. All of the sort of edgy, uh, crazy ideas that it tried to put in just didn't resonate with people at all. And like mm. almost immediately... 
I think that was the case. But it was, of course, again, had a lot to do with the way that game was marketed, right? The way they were saying, John Romero is going to make you his bitch. It was, yeah. it was all all that expectation, right? They were really going up against it as well, right? Like he had, there was a sort of a, a, conf, a boy band versus boy band sort of <laughs> meta story going on right. with those studios. Um, uh, and then another, I think another one that, that sticks out to me is a game that uh, probably had a lot of expectation on its back, not just for the game itself, but also the way it was being released, which was Mighty Number no. 9. Oh, um, which was, a, you know, the yes. game everyone wanted, right? They wanted that, the original creator to come back. It's that whole Spiritual story successor of Mega Man. Right, yeah. yes. Yeah. Totally, right? And for it to basically commit all of the Kickstarter sins that we now hate, right? Where a game gets delayed and doesn't meet expectation and doesn't look like it was originally pitched and gets, a, you know, a messy launch and it's overly expensive. It, it just did not work in so many different ways. I think that's one that you kind of look at and go, yeah, they, that, that's, that's a failure in kind of a multitude of different ways. Yeah, I would, I would put maybe nominate a couple um, I would have to say Earthbound 64. Okay. Never came out. However, just I think there, there's something about how Earthbound actually is a great example, period, on the Super Nintendo. It did not do the numbers that Nintendo hoped it would do. No. And I mean, in Japan, that game is attached to, I mean, Shigesato Itoi, people actually know who that guy is. He's a celebrity copywriter. It's very strange, actually. Huh. But, uh, you know, the guy is actually a celebrity. And he managed to make a couple of video games. People actually, you know, he would get recognized on the street, which is really uncommon, especially at that stage. And just audiences outside of Japan just did not get it, didn't sell. But it's one of those things where people who actually played it, loved it. And then game ended up, ended up not coming out. And we've just never really, I mean, we got a Earthbound 3, came out on the advance. That was cool. But people really wanted that. Okay, what does Earthbound look like? In full in 3D, yeah. when I can really immerse my immerse myself in it, then I might have to say it's sort of an obvious one, but I might have to say the Virtual Boy mm. because I think the you know mm. Virtual Boy was really I mean it's in retrospect and I think at the time I think everybody knew it was a really bad idea. I mean it was basically a <laughs> Game Boy that you sat. On a table. It looked like a 3D headset that you could strap yeah, to your head. But you couldn't. It, yeah. The ads always no. made it look like you could just wear it on your head. It made it look portable. And I think as a kid, I thought it would be. I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to buy it. and I'm just going to play in the car. No. 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 You had to sit it on a stand, peer into it. And it was basically just, you know, those little <laughs> LED flashing lights. It was like somebody flashing laser lights into your <laughs> eyes the entire time. I think it recommended that you take a break. Every 20, 30 minutes or so. It was awful. And Which kids love doing. Kids love to take breaks while playing video yes, games. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but it was it was basically a, a, a pseudo 3D Game Boy. It was all red and all black and these little LED laser light things. And there was no real games on it that were amazing. I think maybe the entire library is like 20 games. The thing got abandoned real quickly, but it was made by the dude who made Nintendo. Nintendo. Yokoi Goombay, yep. the old, the OG. I mean, he invented the Game of Watch. He invented the Game Boy. All these amazing things, and then he makes, he makes this this device, right? The Virtual Boy, and it just. And I think they knew at the time this this just ain't it. Yeah, this but ain't I think, it. I think it speaks to in in the way maybe the best failures do. 
the heart of the company, the heart of the yes. team that made it, which yes. is Nintendo at their best. Sometimes Nintendo can be very conservative. You know, they're not they're not out here doing indie games or something like that, right. really, right? They're not out here doing uh, uh, really experimental works in narrative fiction or something. But what they do is take big shots at interesting devices. Yes. They think about the different ways games can fit into our lives and where they can kind of intercede and make new developments and, and fill gaps that maybe we didn't even know existed. And so that's why the DS succeeds so well. It's why the right. Wii succeeds so well. And, and now it's why the Switch has fit into people's lives so incredibly well. Something that I think people would have made fun of coming off of the Wii U. Like, oh, they already tried that touchscreen thing. It didn't work. Why are they going to really do that again? It again? And it turns out, yeah, they did it again yeah. and they crushed at, it this time. At, at, their, at their heart, they are a toy company. Mm. And they're a toy company. I mean, that's where Gunpei Okoye came from. He came, make it, he came out making toys. Before there were video games, he was making toys. And Nintendo, at their heart, is a toy company. And Yukoi made a toy that did not work out, but it definitely speaks to this is when Nintendo is at its best. It's this quirky company out of Kyoto that just right. occasionally makes really weird stuff that happens to slap. And sometimes it slaps and sometimes it falls. Yeah. Right? You don't and, get the Switch without the Virtual Boy. I think you're right. Yeah. And that's an element of success and failure maybe that's worth touching upon is that inherently if you're trying to make something that's that's like out there and innovative and successful and new and ends up being great, there is more risk involved. And sometimes yeah. when you make that big swing, you know, the strikeout just seems even worse. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, thank, that worked out for uh, Nintendo in a way it did not work out for Sega. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Rest, rest well, in peace okay, to but, the but look at what Sega is in, in an interesting situation now, right? Sega gets out of the console market, and then what, what happens in the last 10 years, they become a publisher and start really leaning into being a publisher mm. by acquiring big studios like Creative Assembly uh, and a number yeah. of, of other studios that were making the sorts of games that Sega themselves weren't making anymore. They buy a company like Atlas that puts out the Persona games, which are extremely well-loved uh, JRPGs, the sort of game that Sega themselves were not really making anymore. Yeah. Again, they buy a company like the Creative Assembly who's making the Total War games, these strategy games. Sega's not making those games, but they recognize the quality and they say, okay, we're going to invest in that. We're going to give you the resources you need to make good stuff and go from there. So, Danny, you make these really fascinating, long, in-depth documentaries of the process of making games, right? And this, this makes me think of, say, Apocalypse Now, right? Absolute classic, well-regarded by anybody who's seen it. But there's also a documentary about it, which reveals just how much of a disaster that project does, Right. Have you seen anything like that where there's just a game that is, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then you look behind the scenes, just, oh man, y'all should really know <laughs> about what it was like for the people baking this. Have you seen that? Have you, have you made anything like that? Well, that's, that's the interesting, interesting thing about failures, especially failures that, that turn successful, is that there's often a sort of self-filtering process, right? Like the studios that want us to talk to them are generally the ones that have got something good to say. Even if it was bad at a certain point, like our Final Fantasy XIV documentary, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, or you know Rocket League we did as well. We talked all about supersonic, acrobatic, rocket-powered battle cars, which was the original version of that game. Uh, Rocket League, I think, <laughs> yeah. worked better on the... On the <laughs> Uh, for consumers, um, yeah, generally, generally they're they're pretty upbeat stories, right? To be there in the moment, like that's why Heart of Darkness is such a good documentary, right? Or the the making of Fitzcarraldo, right? One of my absolute favorites um, is because 
people were there in the moment recording. And that's what we basically set ourselves up to do at Hades. Uh, unfortunately, Supergiant are really good at making games. <laughs> and also don't fight with each other very much. So the only, um, the only instance we've really had of that is either retrospectively looking back, mm-hmm. um, or in the case of Hades, the, the sort of the big curveball that happened was uh, COVID-19. Obviously, it's affected everyone right. in the world in some way, so it's not unique to them. Um, but certainly uh, what happened uh, to them, and there was a bunch of other fallout that happened, like their studio got broken into during that. We have all the footage of all that happening and what got stolen, like all that type of thing. That's about as close as we got because we were for once on the ground over an extended period of time. Right. Um, the problem with making documentaries like that about games is that movies are generally shot in a couple of months. So you can really like go there and be embedded. Whereas yeah. to be embedded on these game projects, you know, it's a, it's, it's a big swing. So we did it with Hades uh, and our series is just about finished. Uh, and we've got some other projects, which um, who knows, maybe they'll end up as good games or maybe they'll end up like Werner Herzog <laughs> trying to kill Klaus Kinski. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, one can only hope. I, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> but yo, that actually reminds me. I think there's something that we didn't mention too much of, which is that um, if I could just extend for a tiny little bit, uh, Hades, right? This game drops and it's for the 2020, you know, top game of the year for all these different publications. It's just right up there in the running. And it's not up against little dinky indie games. They're going up against the heavy hitter triple A's, you know, right up in there. I think that was something they didn't even expect. Totally. And I I think that it shows when something like that happens to me, it speaks not only to the quality of the game, but to the ways in which the people who are voting on awards like that, whether that is an audience favorite award or if that's a publication, how their tastes are changing as well. And I think for a lot of us on this side of the of the line in the industry, we are extremely ready to give our game of the year to a little indie game from a studio that we know treats its people well and does really interesting things uh, uh, versus another big blockbuster open world AAA game. Not that we don't like those games, but I think there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of work that goes into thinking about what does giving an award like this mean? What is it that we are rewarding when we give an award like this? Um, and, and what message does it send to the industry? Also, people just loved playing Hades. They really, truly did in, in a way that felt distinct from some of those other big blockbuster games, you know? So, well-earned, I think. Yeah, and, and Dexter, you mentioned that like you know Greg didn't expect that game to be as successful, and the team didn't. You know, we were embedded with that crew for two years, right? And that was the first time that I totally got it wrong. I didn't expect it to have that big breakthrough moment either. I'd been playing it in early access for two years, and it was essentially like very similar to the game that I'd been playing up to that point. And they'd added so much to it, but you know, being around them and 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 playing the game for that long, I also didn't get the sense that it was this big breakthrough thing um that it ended up being and i thought that was remarkable and wow and you're, the, you're well, the like, most you're the most objective person in the room and you've seen a lot of games and you have no idea yeah like we didn't i did i really didn't think it would have the sort of you know i thought people would think it was a good it was a well-made game right yeah it had an incredible amount of craft from very talented people no denying that but to see it go up against the last of us two and to win game of the year awards in a year that had like this year was very good. 2020 was a very good year for yeah. video games and yeah. um, a large breadth of types mm-hmm. of experiences too. Right. So I think that was a shock and it sort of showed me for the first time that, Oh yeah. Like even a game like that, that ended up winning game of the year awards 
when you're in it, you just can't tell. Um, so yeah, who knows? Making did, games is really tricky. Did you get the sense that they understood they were making a game that to some degree was closing a gap between the sort of game it was, which is, for people who don't know, Hades is this kind of high-intensity action-driven game where you die a lot and have to start over and what you're, the kind of dungeon you're going through changes every time you play and you're getting different abilities every time you play, which is a, a game that we call roguelike or a roguelike-like or a roguelite sometimes. Um, uh, and then on the other hand of it, very story-driven, characterful, uh, a little sexy, a little bit interested in character uh, relationships and romance, uh, a little melancholy at places, the sort of story-driven stuff that we traditionally see from something like a JRPG, an adventure game, a visual novel. Did they understand that they were closing the gap and maybe were going to be able to hit a different audience that felt left out of the roguelike boom? I, I don't think that they were blind to the fact that that might happen, but I do not think that that was the waypoint that they were setting themselves. Uh, one of the reasons I think Supergiant is so good and that they 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 have made games that have been the sort of fullest expression of what they wanted to make is that they're very good at understanding what their core competencies are as creators mm. and then making games that align with that. I think, you know, there's a big thing to be said for, you know, most of the sort of the core group of that team has stake in the company. They want to work there for a long time. They want to enjoy the art that they make. And so they don't, you know, sort of chase trends that way or maybe target holes in the market. I'm sure there's an element of that and they're not ignorant to it. You know what I mean? But no, I think what was going on is that they wanted to make a game that was a bit more um, replayable. Uh, it basically extended the life because the, the tragedy of many other games is that once you're done with them, you're kind of done with them, right? Like, right. you know, replaying a game like Transistor or Bastion is just a kind of like replaying it the first time. Um, so I think that they were trying to make an experience that was a little bit longer and they just have really great artists that are able to make these fantastical worlds. They have a very strong uh, writing lead in Greg Kasavin who's able to add that flavor to the game. I could look at a game like Pyre, the amount of like uh, text in Pyre, right? the amount right. of voice acting they have. They've now cut their teeth at doing voice acting in all of these games. They have you know a, a suite of people that can come in and help them do that sort of stuff. And Darren's an incredible audio engineer. So I think it was more that they just understand where their core competencies are, where their strengths are, and they aligned that with a game that they thought they wanted to make. And of course, it ends up being, you know, the best version of that game that they could have make made, because that's just sort of the way they go about making stuff. I mean, I think we've, we've hit a lot of stuff. Is there anything you feel like we should, we should jump into, we should touch on? Making games is hard. Making it's games hard. is really difficult. Yeah, it's hard for big teams. It's hard for small teams. It's hard if you're trying to innovate. It's hard if you're just trying to toe the line. Um, and we get to sit on this side of the 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 situation and, and read the tea leaves and see what worked and what didn't work. But often when you know, you're know you in the fog of creating something, it's, it's truly difficult to decipher whether what you're making is exceptional or just bound to bomb. And, uh, you know, the thing about games in 2021 is that we're all on the front row these days. We all get to watch, um, you know, and whether or not that ends up a success or failure, um, you know, it was anyone's guess. Definitely. My, my final thing here is like, if you hear us talking about what game development is, you watch this episode, you see what happens at Supergiant or Inner Sloth, you, you hear, you know, some, some kind of uh, legends of game development talking about their experience earlier in the episode, go do it. There are tutorials online right now 
free tool sets to pick up and try to learn how to do something because there's never been a better time to both play games but also learn how to make them. Uh, there's so many free resources online for just like dipping your toe in the water and nothing will teach you as much about that as trying to make some little thing. I, seriously, even if it's just a text-based adventure thing, it, whether it's that or like a very simple dungeon crawl, like there's all sorts of things you could just tinker with to get a slightly better understanding of what goes into making a game. And it, it, it's worth doing it if you have even the, the little, the smallest inkling of wanting to do it, do it. I mean, honestly, yeah, you're, you're totally right. Because really, you could be watching this once this episode ends. Once this episode ends, once this is over, stay to the end. Once <laughs> this is over, you could get off. You can get on YouTube. You can look at some tutorials, download some free software. Mm -hmm. And you could have a game made maybe before you go to bed. It would be very simple. Let's it's be very, simple, very simple, right? <laughs> but you could do that. You could do it. You could absolutely do that, which, which, is, which is amazing. And I, and I do hope that with that knowledge... And with the knowledge of hopefully in this episode getting to peek a little bit behind the curtain, see what it's like, looking both at the failures and successes, that people do take, bring, shall I say, a little bit more compassion to it. Because as you're saying, mm -hmm. this game development stuff is hard. You don't know what went into it. You don't know what the conditions are. They don't know whether it's going to come out well or not all the time, right? And, and the kind of constant stream of learn to do your job can't you code all this stuff it's just come on man everybody's out here we're we're really trying to create some kind of art form something that will speak to people and i do hope that as we move forward right with more understanding of how this all works with the effort that it takes to put these things together and just you know the absolute who knows what the hell's going on luck that goes into so much of this that people will have bring a little bit more compassion to it and say okay look they probably did their best. They probably did their probably best. Did. And, and let's let, let's give it a shot. Let's play it. Maybe I don't. Maybe I just don't get it. And maybe this is another Shenmue, and I just don't understand. And it's my fault <laughs> for not playing this game in the right way. <laughs> That's where I'm gonna end it. <laughs> but anyway, I think we're good. So, all right, there we go. Uh, anyway, yes. So I'm afraid that is all the time we got for this time. We could definitely go much more on this. But yeah, Austin, Danny, thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. And you, thanks for tuning in again. And definitely come back next time because there's way more to come on Reset, the unauthorized guide to video games. See you next time. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Well, now there's a dog, but... Hey, is that a yep. standard poodle? That is a standard poodle. Yes, it All is. Right. It is a blue poodle.
Uh, so she's she's still very black right now, but she's starting to get that uh, little dishwater uh, ringlets coming in. So <laughs> uh, every every day she looks a little different. Nice. I had I had a very similar dog when I was when I was a kid. Cool dogs. They're great. Uh, I mean, I mean, she's stubborn as hell and kind of an asshole, but she's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think. Um, in general, sorry, Rob, your your, your your dog is on on the yeah. table in the hey, background. Hey, 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 that's <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, that's um. Okay. Um. Uh, all right. There she is. Um. I can angle it away. Um. She's just like she is. Uh. Gonna be a poodle. Uh. For now. Um. There you go. All right. Go there for we it. Go. Perfect. <laughs> 